hey there, I'm Joshua Johnson and the nightlight is on for Wednesday, January 31st, 2024. It's been a very busy day with a lot going on in Congress, including a meeting about keeping kids safe online. Wait till you see what happened with Mark Zuckerberg at the Senate Judiciary Committee. I'll, I'll show you in just a second. There's also some online insanity involving Taylor Swift and the Super Bowl and Donald Trump. I'll get to that in just a second. I'll get to that in just a second. Plus, a story that I'm actually very excited about. There is a new theme park coming online. I know theme parks get a bad rap. I'll tell you why I love them. Be sure to go to nightlightjoshua.com to follow me on social media, buy some merch, and put a few dollars in the tip jar. What a busy day it's been. I can see that some of you have already started to burn up the chat, so clearly it is busy for all the right reasons. Hello to you. Hello to those of you who are watching on Facebook, YouTube, Twitch, and X. If you are watching over on X, just so you know, I cannot currently see your chat comments on my streaming software, so you're better off jumping over to YouTube. I am at Nightlight Joshua on YouTube, where there's a lovely community of people online who are just dying to get into the topics of the day, please do join me over there or on Facebook or on Twitch. You're able to take part in the chat either way. Hello to those of you who are here online. Hello, Nora, who said hi to Holly. And hello, Holly, who said hi to Sarah. And hello, Sarah, who said hi to everybody. I think that is adorable. I love y'all so much. Thank you so much for being here. Appreciate you being here. I see some of you are already talking about a few other topics. They're not necessarily part of the show today. I do want to at least acknowledge, Holly, I see your comment about the E. Jean Carroll verdict. I know you were asking Nora, but I just wanted to acknowledge I see it in the chat. I have not put anything together on that just yet, but I probably will once the various financial penalties have been put together. We're still waiting on the financial penalty from Judge Arthur and Gorin's court about the business dealings of the Trump organization. And the larger question is whether or not that punitive ruling, plus the E. Jean Carroll ruling, which is $83.3 million total, would be enough to basically wipe out all of the cash that the Trump organization claims to have on hand. Whether or not that happens, we shall see. There are a whole lot of factors at play, but part of E. Jean Carroll's ruling was punitive, was basically saying how much money would we have to take out of Donald Trump's pocket for him not to do this again. I tend to think that there is not enough money in Fort Knox to make that happen, considering just on the pattern of his behavior, but we shall see. But once all of that comes together, then I'll probably put something on the program and we will go over all of that in one kind of big lump. But we will see. Um, I, I also, oh, I appreciate Nora saying that the green looks nice on me. Thank you very much. This is my army green. Every time I wear this shirt out, by the way, this kind of army drab green, I think because of the color and because of my build, people just kind of give me that look that says, thank you for your service. They just kind of assume that I'm military. I am not. But, you know, I, I, I have military in my family. My father was a, was a Vietnam veteran. We have army and Marines in my family, and I've got law enforcement. So I just say, you're welcome. I don't want to go through the whole thing. No, I'm actually, I'm actually a reporter. I just work in media. I have a theater degree. Like, we're not going to have that conversation. That would be very, very strange. So I just say, thank you, good citizen, and keep it moving and just do my Captain America thing. But welcome. Glad to have everybody here. Glad to see you. And I want to dive in. Oh, hello, Karina. 
Karina says, good afternoon. Happy to see you. Yes, indeed. Oh, using YouTube on your new TV box set top thing. That is great. I am glad that you're using it there. That's one of the things that I'll be doing more of is walking people through how to follow the nightlight on TV TV. I was thinking about creating an app, but then I realized I don't need to make an app. There's already an app. It's called YouTube and it works on every single platform. So I think that's probably just going to be the way that we go from here on out, at least for the moment. But good to see you. Good to see everybody here today. Let's dive into what is going on today. Not too long ago, last week, in fact, we talked about the impact of social media. I mentioned last week that New York City's health department put out a public advisory, basically warning parents about the health impacts of social media on their kids. New York City has taken the rather strong step of classifying social media as an environmental toxin, and they put out an advisory, a health advisory that is aimed at city agencies, child care providers, and really all the parents and teachers and every caregiver of children in the city of New York, all eight, nine million people who live in the city. It calls out the mental health impacts of social media, which we've known about quite a bit, particularly correlative and anecdotal evidence that social media is tremendously impactful for young people, if not deleterious. And it also mentioned the Surgeon General's advisory that came out last year, which we'll get to a little bit later on, that says in part, quote, the current body of evidence indicates that while social media may have benefits for some children and adolescents, there are ample indicators that social media can also have a profound risk of harm to the mental health and well-being of children and adolescents. At this time, we do not yet have enough evidence to determine if social media is sufficiently safe for children and adolescents, unquote. Pause right there. I think that's important context to keep in mind as we go into this first topic. And y'all, this first topic, it's, it may be the biggest chunk of the show because the more I got into it, the deeper the rabbit hole got, and I think it needs some real smart conversation and has not been getting the smartest conversation, including today at the US Senate, but we'll get to that momentarily. I think that point in the Surgeon General's report is a good place to start. We don't quite know whether social media on balance is good or bad for kids. We know that cigarettes on balance are bad for human beings, which is why back in the 90s, when I was in high school, there was a huge lawsuit brought by a bunch of state attorneys general against the tobacco industry, accusing them of knowing that their product was highly addictive, that it was dangerous, but marketing it to young people anyway, because they knew if they could get you to start smoking before you turned 18, you would most likely be a consumer for life. Every day at the time, 3,000 people started smoking each day. 1,000 would be hooked, and many of them would die or have their lives destroyed. And so that created a master settlement agreement, which was the birth of the Truth Campaign. I was part of the Truth Campaign when it was just in the state of Florida, and then it expanded nationally, and Truth has been amazingly powerful. And one of the things that kind of got the public consciousness moving about the impacts of smoking on kids were congressional hearings with members of the tobacco industry, where senators could just, and well, members of Congress could just kind of excoriate them over their product, and you could watch them rise, and then people said, okay, fine, we need to do something. This is not that. This is different. Cigarettes were 
obviously, demonstrably, causally detrimental to health. Social media is much more gray. Is social media bad if, for example, you have a kid who is from a particular cultural background? Let's say you're the only, I'm pulling this out of the air, the only Punjabi kid who lives in your town. And you can connect with other Punjabi kids on social media to at least share your culture and not feel so alone. We can't damn all of social media because it helps that kid. But then there are the kids who end up in rabbit holes online and they get radicalized or their mental health problems get worse and they end up doing awful things that they and their family regret. That's obviously bad. But on balance, it's problematic. We just don't know exactly as a country yet what to do about it. Do you keep all kids away from it? Do you just limit it? Do you regulate what the parental controls are? Like, what do you do? That's tough to figure out. And I'll get into that and I'll show you what some of those efforts are to figure this out in just one second. But the big news out of today was a hearing with the Senate Judiciary Committee, which looks like just ended a little bit before we came on the air. It's just finally ended. This was a hearing that was led, as I said, by the Senate Judiciary Committee. Uh, Senator Richard Durbin, Democrat from Illinois, is the chairman of the committee. The witnesses for this hearing were the big hitters in social media. Linda Yaccarino, who is the CEO of X, formerly known as Twitter. Elon Musk had been the CEO, and then he agreed to back off and make someone else the CEO because he was terrible at it. Linda Yaccarino used to be the head of advertising sales for NBC Universal, and then she got hired to be the CEO there. Sho Chu, who is the chief executive officer of TikTok. It says Singapore, which technically is where the company is based, but it is owned by a company called ByteDance, which is based in China. Evan Spiegel, who's the co-founder and CEO of Snap. That's the company that makes the app Snapchat. Mark Zuckerberg, who's founder and CEO or co-founder and CEO of Meta, which is the parent company of Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp, and the new app called Threads. And Jason Citron, who's the CEO of Discord, which is another social media app that, frankly, I kind of like a little more than some of these others. Imagine an app that kind of works like Slack, but for general topics and for everyone to use. You basically create a community within the Discord platform that can be very closed, very open, invitation only. It's got kind of subheadings and you can put comments on it. So it's it feels a little like Slack, except it's it doesn't give you the same kind of visceral reaction of, oh my God, that Slack notification, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make myself crazy. That's what Discord is. But all five of these services have had issues in terms of the sharing of pornographic materials, including child pornography, of hate speech, of affecting the mental health of the people who use it. They're all kind of in the spotlight for these particular issues. So these five CEOs came to testify before Congress today. It was a long hearing. Looks like the hearing, <clears throat> excuse me, ran about, gosh, about four hours um, or thereabouts and was as contentious and intense as you would expect it to be. I am not always a fan of covering these kinds of hearings because they are rarely smart proceedings. They are quite often all heat and no light. And I have a problem with that. Um, you, some of you have heard me talk in terms of light and heat as it relates to journalism, but this was really a lot of heat and not a lot of light. 
the most dramatic moment today happened between Republican Senator Josh Hawley of Missouri and Mark Zuckerberg, the co-founder and CEO of Meta. All of these platforms have been widely criticized, as you probably already know, for their impact on kids. Josh Hawley, who is not shy about being all, you know, being very full of sound and fury, was among the senators who really went after Mark Zuckerberg in particular. I want to show you the big exchange, the one that is making all the headlines this morning. This happened less than an hour and a half ago between Hawley and Zuckerberg. And then I'll give you a little more context on the rest of how this day went. Josh Hawley was thundering away at Mark Zuckerberg in terms of what you should be doing, Mr. Zuckerberg, to compensate the families who have lost loved ones because they went online and fell into a rabbit hole that soured their mental health and then they took their own lives. Sitting behind the witnesses was a packed gallery at the Senate Judiciary Committee, more packed than its chairman, Richard Durbin, says he had ever seen for any hearing in all of his 22 years on the committee. A number of the people in the committee, as you'll see in this video, were holding up pictures, big placards, with the pictures of their loved ones who they say took their own lives after falling into online rabbit holes that affected their mental health. Josh Hawley kind of reached the crescendo of this line of questioning of Mark Zuckerberg about whether the company should be compensating these victims or doing something or putting money into a fund and on and on and on. And at a certain point, apparently Mark Zuckerberg had had enough, and he just stood up, turned around, turned his back to Josh Hawley, faced the families, and said he was sorry for what they had been through, and said that his company was working to make sure that this never happened to anyone else. I'm going to show you this exchange. It's about two and a half minutes long total, and then I'll talk you through it and we'll keep going. But just so you can see the whole thing, because you're going to see sound bites and hear little snippets of it and bits and pieces for the rest of this day. Here is what entirely happened at the Senate Judiciary Committee today. Deserve some compensation for what your platform has done? Help Senator with counseling services? Help with dealing with the issues that your, your service has caused? Our, our job is to make sure that we build tools to help keep people safe. Are you going to platform. compensate them? Senator, our job and what we take seriously is making sure that we build industry-leading tools to find harmful to content, make money. take it off the services, uh, to make money. and to build tools that empower parents. So you didn't take any work. action. You didn't that's take any true, action. Senator. You didn't fire anybody. You haven't that's compensated a single not, victim. Let me ask you this. Let me ask you this. There's families of victims here today. Have you apologized to the victims? I, Would I'm, you like to do so now? Well, They're here. You're on national television. Would you like now to apologize to the victims who have been harmed by your product? Show them the pictures. Would you like to apologize for what you've done to these good people? I, 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 I'm sorry for everything that you have all gone through. It's terrible. No one should have to go through the things that your families have, have suffered. And this is why we invest so much and are going to continue doing industry-leading efforts to, uh, to make sure that no one has to go through the types of things that your families have had to suffer. You know... Why, Mr. Zuckerberg, why should your company not be sued for this? Why is it that you can claim, you hide behind a liability shield, you can't be held accountable? Shouldn't you be held accountable personally? Will you take personal responsibility? Senator, I, I think I've already answered this. I mean, this is, these well, are Well, try this issues. again. Will you take personal responsibility? 
Senator, I view my job and the job of our company as building the best tools that we can to keep our community safe. Well, you're failing at that. To, well, Senator, we're doing an industry-leading effort. We build AI oh, tools nonsense. that- Your product is killing people. Will you personally commit to compensating the victims? You're a billionaire. Will you commit to compensating the victims? Will you set up a compensation fund Senator, with your money? I think these are-, these are With your money. Senator, these are complicated yes, that, issues. No, that, that's not a complicated I, I, question, though. That's Senator, a yes or no. Will you set up a victim's compensation fund with your money, the money you made on these families sitting behind you? Yes or no? Senator, I don't think that that's... Uh, my job is to Sounds make sure like a no. good tools. My, my job like is no. to make sure that... Your job is to be responsible for what your company has done. You've made billions of dollars on the people sitting behind them. Are you here? You've done nothing to help them. You've done nothing to compensate them. You've done nothing to put it right. You could do so here today, and you should. You should, Mr. Zuckerberg. So that's what happened today between Republican Senator... Josh Hawley, Republican of Missouri, and Mark Zuckerberg, the co-founder and CEO of Meta, which again owns Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp, and Threads. This was kind of a common line of rhetoric today, particularly among the Republicans on the committee. Though let's be clear, the Democrats on the committee were also very pointed in their questions of all of these CEOs. Sho uh, Chu, who is the head of uh, TikTok got a ton of questions as well about the impact of TikTok and about that company's ties to the Chinese government and the Chinese Communist Party. Senator Tom Cotton, who's a Republican from Arkansas, particularly went after him over that. Uh, Marsha Blackburn went after Sho Chu for the impacts of his app on other families and, and, and also went after Mark Zuckerberg and basically said that he's making money from online you know, child sex trafficking, which, of course, drew a very shocked reaction from Mark Zuckerberg. He's like, that's that's insane. But this was kind of the way the committee hearing went. The Democrats asked a lot of very somber, very serious questions. Everyone raised a lot of concerns about the actual impacts on children. And Republican members, particularly Josh Hawley, Marsha Blackburn, uh, Tom Cotton of Arkansas, and Ted Cruz of Texas, just sort of thundered away at the CEOs in the form that you just heard. I don't know that today's hearing is going to change much. I certainly didn't hear a whole lot of policy conversation. Granted, I didn't listen to all four hours, but I don't see the point of Josh Hawley's line of questioning. I think the real you know, winner of that photo op was Mark Zuckerberg standing up, turning around to the families and saying, I'm sorry for what you've been through. We're trying to make sure this never happens again. We'll talk more about what the industry's actually doing in just a second, but Josh Hawley's line of questioning was, as it often is, kind of aiming in the wrong direction, if aiming anywhere at all. Asking Mark Zuckerberg, do you believe you should compensate the families? That's not for, the, for Congress to decide. That's for the courts to decide. If the families are due compensation, that has to go through a court to make sure, among other things, that they're not lowballed. Because whatever a private organization, a publicly traded company is going to give may well be less. It's going to be as little as possible. So the idea that Josh Hawley would say, don't you think these families, don't you think out of your own pocket you should compensate them? The last person I want calculating the compensation is the guy who did it. That's a dumb idea. But it's a great soundbite. I guarantee he's going to be on Fox News tonight and today and probably like in an hour and a half. So that's a silly idea. Shouldn't you be sued? Maybe, but like, okay, 
Shouldn't you spend some of your money to make sure that this never happens again? I think if I was him, and I'm not him, and this is why I should never testify before Congress, I would want to spend money to catalog all the times that Congress has had the opportunity to regulate this, and it did not. That's what I'd spend my money on. All the members of this committee, and again, this was a four-hour hearing. Some of the questions, I mean, you you got a number of people in there, Richard Blumenthal, Maisie Hirono, Sheldon Whitehouse, uh, even Josh Hawley, to his credit, has been, and Ted Cruz have been among the members. Lindsey Graham was in this hearing as well. They have been among the members who've been trying to come up with legislation. Senator Lindsey Graham has a bill, I'll show it to you in just a second, who've been trying to do something. So it's not like nothing has been proposed or nothing has moved. That's not quite true. Things have been proposed, and I will show you, and I'll show you how to find them for yourself. It's just that that's not enough. You gotta pass something. Passing these kinds of laws is remarkably difficult for one for one or two real clear reasons, but one legal reason, one business reason, which is just kind of the industry's own stonewalling. But there is a reason why it's so hard to do, and I'll show it to you in just one second. But the hearing itself was kind of like, okay, fine, yelling and screaming, but every four hours you spend yelling at these CEOs and not working towards solutions is another four hours that our kids online can spend falling into rabbit holes that may very well get them killed. So are you gonna keep getting sound bites for the news or are you gonna start working towards solutions? To be fair to Congress, the whole issue is not just Congress. It's not just a matter of them doing nothing. Like I said, it's not that Congress is doing nothing. There are plenty of members of Congress who are trying to put forth bills, including some of the people who are in this committee today. So it's not that Congress is doing nothing, it's just passing nothing, nothing's becoming law. That's the actual issue. But there's more to it that's bigger than Congress. And I wanna show you what that is. Before I can do that, I gotta give you a little bit of background in terms of where we are now. What does the law actually say right now, and what's wrong with it. You may remember that there was a bill, a law, that passed back in the 90s. Um, and if you are too young to remember the mid-90s, they happened, I was there. There was a law called the Communications Decency Act of 1996. The Communications Decency Act has since been largely struck down, except for one section, known as Section 230. This is a report from the Congressional Research Service on Section 230, which came out just this month. It came out a few weeks ago. Sidebar, if you ever wanna learn anything about any policy topic at all, go online to the Congressional Research Service. Their whole job is to put together reports to inform members of Congress about various issues, to just summarize things and to, to give them primers and just sort of show them, okay, here's everything you need to know about Iran. Here's everything you need to know about you know agriculture bills. Here's everything you need to know about defense spending over the last 20 years. That's CRS's job. They work for the institution of Congress. They don't work for the individual members. So their job is to be congressional staff, not political staff. The Congressional Research Service is a phenomenal way to become an instant expert on just about anything policy-wise that you want to know. Use it. I'm telling you, 
You will win a few beers at the bar with what you learn from the Congressional Research Service. So they put out this report about Section 230. As I said, the Communications Decency Act of 1996 largely got struck down. Section 230 is basically the only part that survived. If you look at the CRS report, it explains what it is. This statute, and here's the crux of the issue, here's what's making this so hard. Section 230 provides limited federal immunity to providers and users of interactive computer services. The statute generally precludes, prevents, precludes providers and users from being held liable, that is legally responsible, for information provided by another person, but does not prevent them from being held legally responsible for information that they have developed or for activities unrelated to third-party content. Courts have interpreted Section 230 to foreclose a wide variety of lawsuits and to preempt laws that would make providers and users liable for third-party content. For example, the law has been applied to protect online service providers, like social media companies, from lawsuits based on their decisions to transmit or take down user-generated content. Unquote. Pause right there. What does that mean? This basically means that if I own a social network, let's call it Blabosphere, since I use that term all the time. Hi, my name is Joshua Johnson. I'm here to make the world more open, connected, and friendly. And so I got a bunch of money from some guy in Palo Alto to form a social network that's going to revolutionize the world, introducing Blabosphere. Download the app today. You download the Blabosphere app, and you decide to post child pornography on my app. Who gets sued? You do. You're the one who posted it. I'm just the pass-through. And what Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act says is that the company, the social network, is not the one responsible for the actions of its users. You chose to do something awful, not me. I didn't elevate the awful thing you did, unless I did through the algorithms that feed content to users in a very targeted way. See how this gets thorny? The job of Blabosphere, in this case, is not to serve you the best content. It's to serve you the most content and to keep you engaged. So if some aspect of this gigantically complicated algorithm happens to serve you something that is illicit, the law creates this bit of a gray area in who's responsible. Yes, I am allowed to create a company that keeps you as engaged as possible, but if something that you engage with is deleterious or harmful or negative or just vile, we can't just blame the company for handing it to you unless you can prove that they wanted you to see that. That's what Section 230 does. It makes it very hard under the law to hold these companies legally responsible. Does that make sense? It doesn't mean that these companies necessarily want hate speech or child pornography or any of these awful things online, but they are largely shielded from all kinds of liability for the impacts of their own social networks. That's kind of the underpinning of this. And the challenge for Congress has been to figure out, okay, well, we can't go about it directly because the law has made it a lot harder for us to go after these places very directly. So what do we do? How do we protect kids if that's the situation? But that's the underpinning of all of this, is this whole Section 230 challenge. So why is it that hard? 
There's the other piece of this, which has to do with the laws that have been proposed to try to deal with this in other ways. And one of the things that we have to kind of bear in mind is that Mark Zuckerberg's hands are not completely clean in all of this. Because one of the issues with the whole process has been that a number of states have tried to create their own laws. They have tried to fill in the gaps with this law, Section 230, and another law called COPPA, C-O-P-P-A. I will show you a summary of COPPA in just one second. But the issue is not just with the lack of a new law. Part of the issue is that Mark Zuckerberg himself and his company is part of a trade group whose job it has been to prevent some of these measures from being able to advance in the first place. It's one thing to say lawmakers aren't doing enough and lawmakers aren't doing enough. But the flip side is what the industry is doing. You might be surprised, or perhaps not surprised at all, at how much energy that the tech industry has put into pushing back against these new efforts. Mark Zuckerberg's meta, Linda Yaccarino at X, Discord, TikTok, these companies are all part of this. I wanna show you a little bit of what they've been up to and then explain why legally the actual challenge is not really about keeping kids safe. It's something even bigger. It's a constitutional challenge. I'll explain when we come back. This is The Nightlight. I'm Joshua Johnson. Thank you for making time for me today. Remember to go to nightlightjoshua.com to find all the links to follow me on social media, such as it is. You can also download the podcast of this program and sign up for a premium subscription on Apple Podcasts, which will soon be coming to Spotify, so you can get every episode ad-free. You'll also get access to monthly Ask Me Anything live streams on YouTube and discounts on merch on the online store. You'll also find the link to the merch store at nightlightjoshua.com, and you can put a few dollars in the online tip jar. You can also reach out to me directly and contact me, or you can always email me, joshua at nightlightshow.com. Good to see all of you here online. It is so funny that when I went online to look up something related to a different story that just broke and I was just looking for a bit of detail, I go to the Washington Post website. And what is at the top of the Washington Post website at the moment? It is an ad from Instagram that says, Instagram supports federal legislation that puts parents in charge of teen app downloads with a button that says, learn more. And on the right side of the ad, more than 75% of parents agree teens under 16 shouldn't be able to download apps from app stores without parental permission. And then this ad plays. Let me see if I can get this ad to play so you can hear it. Hang on. Let's, let's just hear what this ad says that happened to run on the Washington Post's homepage on the exact same day that Mark Zuckerberg testified. Let's see what this ad says. More than 75% of parents agree teens under 16 shouldn't be able to download apps from app stores without parental permission. Instagram wants to work with Congress to pass federal legislation that gets it done. 
Okay. And then it links to something that says Instagram.com slash parental. Let's see it. Might as well. Instagram.com slash parental approval. What is at that page? Oh, here we go. Big page. Instagram supports federal legislation that puts parents in charge of teen app downloads. More than 75% of parents agree. Okay, we just saw this. Instagram wants to work with Congress to pass federal legislation that gets it done. That looks like the video we just watched. And it says, every teen is unique and every family has a different parenting style. That's why it's important parents have the resources to create positive online experiences with their teens. Instagram supports federal legislation to put parents in charge of teen app downloads. Learn more. And then at the bottom, it's got links to Instagram's parent guide, to the family center with tools to help parents regulate what their kids are watching. Although if you've ever tried to work through any of the controls or settings of Facebook, Instagram, threads, you you kind of need a, a, a computer science degree. And then the Privacy Center, although you should go check out what these settings are. So let's learn more. What does it want me to know? Congress can make it easier. Is there a particular piece of legislation as I scroll through this page? No, not on that one. Okay, let's back up. Let's see. Maybe one of the other learn more links. Wants to work with Congress to pay. Okay, let's see. Morning Consult. We have a morning consult. Consulted a, conducted a nationwide survey of U.S. parents. This is from Instagram's page. So this is a leader in the industry lobbying you and me on what it supposedly wants. So let's see. Did a survey of parents. So there's a key overwhelming bipartisan consensus in favor of a law requiring parental approval for under 16 App downloads. Currently, app stores restrict downloads if you're under 13. So part of that already kind of exists. Uh, okay, so what are you proposing? It's another survey. Three out of four parents. There's no link to any legislation. It just says parents want this. Congress, go do it. Now, to an extent, I don't put that on Meta. It's not Meta's job to necessarily write laws, although Lord knows lobbyists do that all the time. But... It would be nice if there was a piece of legislation that was specifically being called out, highlighted as a possible solution to the whole situation. So this isn't accidental. It's it's one of the most one of the most useful sites online in terms of the news is what are the Washington newspapers websites because the ads within them are often from lobbying groups or big business interests. And you can see what they want based on the ads they place. Because they know official Washington watches these things, reads these paper pages, and looks at them all the time. So the ads that show up in the Washington Post, Roll Call, The Hill, Politico, Punchbowl News, like a lot of those will telegraph kind of what's going on. And if you learn to watch the advertising shrewdly, if you pay attention to who's advertising, in what ways, and on what days, that'll give you another layer of meaning for what's going on. What businesses have taken out big ads in the Wall Street Journal or Bloomberg or on CNBC that day? What political interests have taken out big ads in the Washington Post or Politico or Roll Call or The Hill or Punchbowl News that day? It doesn't mean that the papers are bought and paid for by these companies because the editorial teams and the business teams are two very different teams. But... That's where the money is coming from to help keep those papers running, and they know who they're trying to influence. So something to keep an eye on. 
it's a little bit of surveillance that a savvy newsreader can do to have another sense of who's influencing whom and where the influence game is being played. Never a dull moment. I would love a dull moment, but I'm not going to get one. Let me get back to our conversation about what's happening online and this debate with how to keep kids safe online. Oh, Joseph, I see you joined the chat. Joseph, hello. Sorry I'm late. What have I missed? Everything, young man. Detention. But yes, I see your comment, Joseph. Classic generic blanket statement. Right. Exactly. Because that's part of the, the issue is that the industry has been like, regulate us, please. Why don't you just regulate us? But they've also fought a number of efforts to be regulated. Before I show you that, I do want to go back. I mentioned these two laws that affect child's safety online. One of them is Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. The other one is COPPA, the Children's Online Privacy Protection Rule. This is from a page from the Federal Trade Commission, which enforces COPPA. And this is a frequently asked questions page for businesses and for parents. It was enacted in 1998, which required the FTC to make and set and enforce regulations concerning children's online privacy took effect on April 21st of 2000. It was amended in 2013, and it's mainly aimed at children under the age of 13. So when we saw that Instagram page that said children under 16 should have stricter regulations, that is an industry way of saying, see, we're suggesting something that's even more stringent than the existing federal laws. That's the subtext underneath that. So the rule applies to people who run commercial websites, online services, which include apps, Internet of Things devices, so smartwatches, things like that, or smart toys that are directed to children under 13. And basically what it says, it's got to, they got to disclose their online privacy policies. There are parental consent requirements. It allows parents to consent or not to whether or not the child's personal information can be used, but... Companies are not allowed to disclose that to third parties. It allows parents to access whatever information that a service has collected and request them to be deleted, keeps that information confidential and secure, retains that information by companies only as long as they have to, and it doesn't require children to give an unreasonable amount of personal information as a condition of using an online activity. That's what COPPA is supposed to do. So these are kind of the laws that we're talking about here. You've got COPPA which took effect on in 2000 and was amended in 2013. And then you've got Section 230, which was part of the Communications Decency Act of 1996. 96. 1996. If you even know that 1996 happened, you need to be carbon dated. Like, that's how long ago this was in internet terms. What were we doing online in 1996? Not much. We still thought Prodigy was breaking the sound barrier. And now we have to completely rewrite these rules because the technology is changing way faster than government is keeping up. The challenge is that the industry is not making this easier. One of the hardest parts of getting this done is dealing with the lobbying efforts of the industry itself. And one of the groups that you need to know about, the primary group, is an industry lobbying firm called NetChoice. NetChoice was the subject of a New York Times piece that ran today, 
timed to coincide with this hearing. One of these things that NetChoice has been effective at is striking down a number of these measures, these efforts to try to improve online safety for children, as unconstitutional. Here's part of what the New York Times write-up says. It reads, quote, Fueled by escalating public concerns over young people's mental health, lawmakers and regulators across the United States are mounting bipartisan efforts to rein in popular social media platforms by enacting a wave of laws, even as tech industry groups work to overturn them. A first-of-its-kind law passed last spring in Utah would require social media companies to verify users' ages and obtain parental consent before allowing minors to set up accounts. Arkansas, Ohio, Louisiana, and Texas subsequently passed similar laws requiring parental consent for social media services. A landmark new California law, the Age-Appropriate Design Code Act, would require many popular social media and multiplayer video game apps to turn on the highest privacy settings and turn off potentially risky features like messaging systems allowing adult strangers to contact young people by default for minors. So, why aren't those measures law? Well, re-enter Congressional Research Service. I'm telling you, if you're not reading the CRS, you're only getting half the story. Congressional Research Service did a report on this. Net choice versus Bonta. Rob Bonta is the Attorney General of the state of California. What happened to this measure, which is known as CADCA, the California Age-Appropriate Design Code Act? What happened with it? NetChoice took California to court last September, federal court in Northern California. The federal court issued a preliminary injunction against CADCA. So what happened? From the Congressional Research Service, the court acknowledged that the law's purpose clearly is important, but nonetheless held that it likely violates the First Amendment. That's why. It's a First Amendment issue. That is what has made these legal challenges by net choice so successful. Because the First Amendment has very clear guardrails against the kinds of speech that can be abridged or regulated in any form. And I want to be clear. The First Amendment does not apply to social networks. Some of you know from when I was on NPR, the very first question that I asked the very first guest on the very first segment of the very first day of 1A was, what is one thing people think they know about the First Amendment, but they really don't? And my guest, his very first answer was, people think the First Amendment applies to social media. It does not. Remember what the First Amendment says, Congress shall make no law, and so on and so forth, abridging the freedom of speech or of the press. It's about what government can't do not about what we can do. It's preventing government from restricting, from restricting your speech. Facebook, thank God, is not a government entity. But California is. And so if California or Utah or Louisiana or Texas or any of these other states try to set laws that run afoul of the First Amendment, they fall apart almost instantly. Why is that? Well, let me get into that, but first, it explains what this law CADCA would have done. CADCA's job was to go past COPPA, that federal law, the Online Privacy Protection Act, the one that the FTC has to enforce. CADCA 
refers to or applies to anyone under the age of 18. COPPA refers to or applies to kids under 13. So CADCA would go even farther. CADCA applies to services that are likely to be accessed by children. COPPA only deals with services that are directed to children, that are specifically for kids. CADCA also prohibits and has prohibitions and mandates involving other reports or risk assessments or design limitations. And it doesn't have the safe harbor provision that's in COPPA. So it, it puts tighter restrictions on what companies could do with the data of children. So why does that not work? It's because of the way that we regulate laws related to the First Amendment. And the courts have already determined that social media is an important field of First Amendment expression that has to be protected with the protections of the First Amendment. Social media is not exempt from that. And the industry has been riding that wave for a long ass time. That's why a lot of these efforts to protect kids online fail because they don't comport with the First Amendment. And the First Amendment is damn hard to get around. Thank God, right? Because I'm a journalist. And journalists support these protections. If you read further down that New York Times piece that I showed you, it notes, California and Arkansas last year, judges in the net choice cases temporarily blocked the new state laws from taking effect. And then the New York Times in its own write-up notes, the New York Times and the Student Press Law Center filed a joint friend of the court brief last year in the California case in support of net choice, arguing that the law could limit newsworthy content available to students. Does that make sense? There are all kinds of First Amendment imperatives at play here, and there's an overlap between the people who run these huge companies and the journalists who are trying to keep an eye on them, because the First Amendment protects it all. The First Amendment protects the speech you don't like, not just the speech you do. The First Amendment protects hate speech. It doesn't really protect pornography, but the law overall protects your right to receive it. But it protects journalism too. It protects all kinds of political speech. It protects satire, artistic expression, controversial political views. All of that is wrapped up in the First Amendment. And it's wrapped up in the fight to protect children as well. That's why this is so hard. On top of that, it's hard because this industry organization, NetChoice, is trying to impede the regulations. They don't like these measures. And they have been very, very successful at fighting them in court. So what do they support? NetChoice, if you go to their web choice, website, which is netchoice.org, it supports what it calls SHIELD. Now, again, SHIELD is not an acronym for a piece of legislation. It would be nice if they just worked and had one and said, pass this thing. SHIELD is an acronym that they have for what they suggest that would make a positive digital experience. It's a six-word acronym. SHIELD, S-Secure, which is securing data privacy with federal regulation. But that's kind of the only one that actually deals with regulation. H is hold, as in holding child abusers accountable. So basically enforcing the existing laws and putting more support behind law enforcement. I, invest in child safety by equipping law enforcement to properly investigate abuse. E, empower parents with educational materials. L, launch easy to use resources about digital safety. Sidebar, shouldn't you be launching some of those resources? Some of those should just be on the social networks. Like who are you expecting to have launched that other than you? 
And then D, develop a digital literacy and safety curriculum. It points to curricula in Florida and Virginia as models of that. I am not versed on those curricula, so I cannot speak to that one way or the other. But worth noting, the members of NetChoice, just so you know, it is all of these companies, it is all the big players online, Amazon, eBay, Expedia, Google, Lyft, Meta, Hotels.com, Orbitz, PayPal, Pinterest, Snap, StubHub, TikTok, Travelocity, Trivago, X, Verisign, VRBO, Yahoo. Like these are the big players. Airbnb, Alibaba, the big players in Silicon Valley that are part of this lobbying organization. So on the one hand, they're saying enforce the laws on child abuse and child predation that are already on the books and support law enforcement in that. That's actually a great idea. If you talk to various law enforcement agencies at every level, they will tell you they would love to go after these predators. They just don't have enough people, they don't have enough resources, and they don't necessarily have the training. They don't necessarily know that on Facebook there is a page that you can just go to as a member of law enforcement, I think I showed it to you last week, where you can make a request on Facebook for materials that are related to a law enforcement investigation. How do you do that? Who do you work with? What is the process? What form do the materials come in? How quickly can we get them back? Do we have to go to a court? Do we need a search warrant? What are the legal implications? That all requires training. And there's lots of training available to law enforcement, but it's not automatic. And a lot of these agencies are like, we would love to do this if we just know how. So to that extent, I think Shield's suggestion is valid because law enforcement has already been asking for this. It's also something that can be done as a form of training that doesn't require what some people would consider the militarization of law enforcement, right? This is, this is more like CSI, NCIS kind of training as opposed to SWAT team training that is highly effective or can be highly effective at protecting kids. So I get that, but what's gonna happen legally? Well, there are efforts. There are efforts and like I said, it's not like no one is doing anything. A few weeks ago, I showed you how to use this wonderful website, congress.gov, and I am a firm believer in you being able to do things for yourself. And so if you just go to congress.gov and search children online, you can see everything that's going on, the meetings that have been held, the bills that are going forward, the items in the congressional record about all these different efforts to protect children online. There was a committee meeting July 27th to consider a bill, Senate Bill 1418, to amend COPPA to strengthen protections. That was discussed on July 27th. There are a number of bills. Ed Markey has proposed a bill just last month, the Children and Teens Online Privacy Protection Act. So there's all this legislation. There was a Senate hearing last February, about a year ago, protecting our children online. And there's a transcript of the hearing. You click right there, it'll take you into the page, show you who testified, there's your transcript, all the people who were there, the members of the committee. This is the same committee that met today, the guests, the witnesses, and this was a hearing of, I think, largely parents and advocates for protecting children. One of the guests, or one of the witnesses, rather, in last year's hearing was Michelle DeLon, who is the CEO of the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, which is one of the agencies where senators would like to have stronger reporting of incidents that affect 
exploited children online so that this database, this kind of clearinghouse, can have more information about them. There's a bill called the Report Act. Marsha Blackburn, one of the members who was in the hearing today, Senate Judiciary Committee, she's got a bill right now. It has passed the Senate. It is at the House. It's on the desk, so to speak. When a bill is held at the desk, that's sort of a, a technical congressional term to say, we pass it, here, clerk of the House, here's the bill, it's on the desk. So that bill has already moved through the Senate. They've already passed it. And if you come to congress.gov, it's Senate Bill 474 called the Report Act. You can see sponsored Marsha Blackburn. There were committee meetings on it last May and last June. You can look here, see the actions that were taken. Date passed by unanimous consent, which is basically nobody objected and so the bill just passes. Lots of bills pass the Senate through unanimous consent. It's normal, it's parliamentary procedure. So that bill has already passed. That bill could become law. There's another measure, the Earn It Act of 2023. Republican Senator Lindsey Graham put this one forward last, uh, last year. It has been on the Senate legislative calendar since May. That might mean that senators liked Blackburn's measure more than Graham's measure because there are lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of measures. Also, the guy from TikTok, the one who testified today, he testified last year. He testified in March. Sho Chu, chief executive officer of TikTok. He testified before the House Energy and Commerce Committee last March. So that's why I hate hearings like this. It's political theater. And I understand how much Broadway loves a revival, but Capitol Hill, enough. Too many revivals of the same political theater. Bad melodrama at best, without enough action. That's why today's hearing, dramatic though it was, moving and evocative though it was, probably was useless. Because if passed his prologue, nothing is really gonna come of this. I will be amazed if Josh Hawley publishes and passes a bill that becomes law that protects kids. It would be great if he did, because there is bipartisan energy behind this, and I think a bill could become law. That would be amazing. But this is kind of where things get stuck. It's great for an election year. It's great for having a soundbite. And I guarantee you that a number of the Republicans who were on today are making their way forward to the cameras to talk to any number of networks and that gives them a reason to be on. And then, oh, by the way, doesn't Joe Biden look like he's about to fall down a flight of steps and break his hip? Yeah, he looks like it's, that's kind of the way all this weaves in. But whether it's gonna do any good for children, who knows? Where does this go from here? Well, NetChoice is continuing to fight the measure in California. They put out a press release just a few days ago about California's attorney general working with a state senator and a state assembly member, state senator Nancy Skinner and assembly member Buffy Wicks, who put forward two new bills that NetChoice opposes. And NetChoice argues that even though they have not seen the text yet, which hopefully will come out rather soon, that it would do the same things that a federal court already found to be potentially unconstitutional. Remember, with a situation like that, the courts are able to put forward an injunction 
of a measure that is likely to succeed on those merits, that is likely unconstitutional. The courts have more latitude in something like that. And that is why these cases, this litigation is so potent. Because if it looks like it's going to violate the Constitution, courts are able to step in. Remember that case last year of the, the graphic designer in Colorado who sued because she thought she might maybe one day have to possibly eventually somehow have to do some work for a gay wedding. Remember that? Even though the gays that she was talking about don't actually exist only on paper, they were theoretical homosexuals. And I know some actual homosexuals who follow the actual laws of homosexual gravity and physics, and none of us wants to deal with her. We're like, next. But she went to court and said, oh my God, a homosexual could theoretically want to do business with me and I might hypothetically be sad. And the Supreme Court said, yeah, you're right. We rule in your favor. Same principle. Same principle. Because she sued on First Amendment grounds over her religious liberties being potentially violated, theoretically, by two lost wayward gays who thought she was their best bet for wedding design, even though we are literally the craftiest, craftiest people in the cosmos. Thank you very much. But I mean, if you think that you need to go to this woman to do anything design wise, you have not watched Drag Race. I already know that you've been living in a cave and you need to come out into the sunshine with your people because your sisters need to talk to you. Sidebar over. Exact same legal principle. If a law or a measure is likely to violate the Constitution, it can be taken down preemptively. That is why net choice has been so successful on the same constitutional principle. So what do you do? Well, there are other efforts moving forward that I think might stand a better chance of actually doing something. One of them, as I said, remember I telling you about the truth campaign where state attorneys general got together and said, this is stupid. We're not doing this. We're not having this. This is ridiculous. That is possibly a way forward for all of this, that there might be a way to work through the states to do something. This state, actually, Nevada, its attorney general, Aaron Ford, announced yesterday that it is suing the social networks over their platforms five popular social media platforms. He put out a release just yesterday saying that they were going after TikTok, Snapchat, Instagram, Facebook, and Messenger, which are all owned by Meta, those last three, accusing them of deliberately structuring the algorithms, the, the computer formulas that decide what you see when, that they designed it deliberately to addict young minds and, as he said in a social post, prey on teenagers' well-understood vulnerabilities. If you read further down the X post thread, it, write, it reads, the litigation alleges these actions have encouraged problematic internet usage and caused young people harms to mental health, body image, physical health, privacy, and physical safety. Further up in his statement, he says, the attorney general says, quote, my commitment to protecting consumers, particularly those that are as vulnerable as our youth, is unwavering. Bringing this litigation is an important step towards ensuring social media platforms put our children's safety before their profits. I look forward to working closely with our partners to protect the youth of our state, unquote. That's how they got the tobacco industry. That's how they got big tobacco. It was not 
that Congress passed a law about smoking. It was state attorneys general who decided to close in on the industry and make the idea of big tobacco a thing, and eventually the industry settled. It settled for an immense amount of money. So this may not come down to testimony in court that destroys some executive and blah, blah, blah. Like We've already got the testimony. They testified today, and they testified last year, and they'll probably testify again next year, and they testified the year before that. So we've heard enough. But attorneys general have the latitude through their offices to do what they want to do in this regard. And I think that could work. I think it could work. What it would turn into, who knows. But having the money from the industry and putting enough public pressure on them that they go, oh, let's figure this out, might actually make a difference before Congress is able to wrap its head around something. I mean, Congress is still tied up over all kinds of other political stuff, and this is an election year. So unless, I hate to say it this way, but unless Joe Biden or Donald Trump determine that it is an election issue that will get them votes, I do not see this moving through Congress quickly. I just don't. Would I like to? Yes. Will it? Not likely. But measures like this, efforts like this with the state attorney general and state attorneys general, that could work. Ultimately, I think it's up to parents. It's up to young people. It's up to those of us who care about them to kind of do the work. The industry's not, they're not going to help as much as we would like them to help. I wish they would, but I just don't, I don't see it. I mentioned that report that came out last year from Vivek Murthy, who is the Surgeon General of the United States, about social media and youth mental health. And it's, it's worth reading. It's a long report. The, even the, the advisory is, is quite lengthy. But there are a number of tips at the end of the report, recommendations that the Surgeon General makes for what people can and should do to help out young adults. It ends with, what policymakers can do, what technology companies can do. But I think the piece that I want to focus on are his recommendations, also what researchers can do, because there is more data that we need, as we said, to really pinpoint what social networks do, which, by the way, is hard because the algorithm keeps changing. So putting together apples to apples research on social media, just from a scientific point of view, is super tough to do. But there are things in the report that it suggests parents, caregivers, and children and adolescents can do. I think that's our best bet for the moment while pressure continues to be applied in other ways. Among the Surgeon General's recommendations for dealing with social media, create a family media plan, set some boundaries at home, create tech-free zones, encourage your kids to make friends in person, to get off their computers and balance that with real-world time. Teach your kids about technology. Empower them to be responsible online participants at the appropriate age, which means that you as a parent have to figure out what age is appropriate for your kids. Don't let cyberbullying go unreported. Report it. Online abuse, exploitation, speak up about it. And model responsible social media behavior. This is the one where I think a lot of parents fall flat on their face, is that kids kind of see what you do. It's that old line from Into the Woods. Remember the song at the end? Careful the things you say, children will listen. It's that. Your kids are going to model you. You're the one who makes it easier, hard. Not just in what you do on social media, but when you have a hard day, who do you talk to? Do your kids see you reach out for help to someone you love and trust? 
If they don't see you do it, why wouldn't they go online? They don't have any other alternative. They're not seeing it modeled anywhere. Why would they do anything differently if you don't model it for them? I don't blame these kids for struggling with this. I totally don't blame them. And then the Surgeon General gets into what kids and adolescents can do. First of all, reach out for help. I think that's the best thing that we can model for kids is just being willing to connect with other people. But then that depends on having other people to connect with. So that could be a bit of a Mobius strip of a problem, but it's still important to state and model as kids are building those social connections. Caution about what you share. God almighty, could you imagine some of the, some of the, some of the dirt you rolled in when you were their age, could, could you imagine if we could see it today? Can you imagine you, your credit score would be a negative number if we knew what you did when you were their age, they would have to wrap you, they would, they would put bubble wrap and Lysol around you on a regular basis if they knew some of the dirt you rolled in when you was their age. And today, it's like everything is just shareable. Now, to an extent, I don't hate that. To an extent, I think that being more open about yourself and your own life is healthy. I think a lot more transgender children would be in much worse situations if they did not feel empowered to speak about being trans. I think a lot more kids who get bullied, whether because of their religion or because of their race, would feel much less empowered to clap back against that, especially when they see it online. So to an extent, I think it's healthy. But the trick is figuring out what that extent is. And the Surgeon General says, don't keep online harassment or abuse a secret. Excellent advice. Excellent advice. Don't take part in online harassment or abuse. Don't join the mean girls for crying out loud. And then develop protective strategies and healthy practices such as tracking the amount of time you spend online. I think sometimes young people just don't even realize like how long you've been on the web. You just start clickety 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 click, clickety 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 click, and you have no idea how long you've been there. You kind of come to out of this fog like, what time is it? And your parents like, what day is it? And you look up and you're like, oh my God, it's July. Why am I still wearing my winter coat? You've been sitting there for seven months. Get up off the couch. They have no idea. So I think just mindfulness makes a huge difference. I know sometimes I will fall into a huge rabbit hole and I have no idea what I've been looking at or what I've been talking about or how long I have been talking. Just like right now, I have no idea how long I've been talking about this issue, but I've reached the end. So that is what happened today in Congress with the hearing at the Senate Judiciary Committee. You saw the exchange between Mark Zuckerberg and Josh Hawley in most of its entirety. They have five minute question periods. I showed you about two and a half. So that's the two and a half minutes that were kind of pivotal that you will see blown up all over the news for the rest of the day today. And hopefully this helps explain why it's so hard to make things happen. It's not that no one cares. And it's not that the industry is doing nothing. I think a lot of the people who are trying to do something really do have sincere desires to see social media be safer. I don't think Josh Hawley is like in the pocket of big social. He's just not doing anything that's going to be effective in helping kids. That's the actual issue. But I think that there is more that can be done. I think there is more that will be done. But I think ultimately we're going to have to start the effort. We're going to have to be the genesis of all of that. It's not going to start from Congress, unfortunately. It's going to start from you and me. It's going to start in the States. But 
If history is any indication, if the fight against the tobacco industry is any indication, that might actually be the right place for it to start. That might actually be the best place for it to start. Not in Washington, but as far away from Capitol Hill and as close to where you live as possible. That's where things get done. When we come back, I'll talk a little bit more about some other controversies that have been happening in Washington. You may have heard that the Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas is about to have to lip sync for his life because the House is moving closer to impeaching him. That would be a gigantic deal if it chose to. I'll touch on that just a little bit. Also, you may have heard that the Super Bowl is on the way. Las Vegas is very excited about that. There's a lot of Super Bowl stuff going on and a lot of sports stuff happening right now. It's not the only big turning point for the sporting scene here in Vegas. I'll touch on that a little bit. And then Taylor Swift versus Donald Trump. What the actual is going on? (laughs) I kind of hate this story. But the more that I thought about it, the more I kind of figured out what I think about it. It's it's silly, of course, but I think it's silly for different reasons than others might view it. I will try to say something cogent about Taylor Swift and not piss off the Swifties. I am, I'm not a Swiftie, but I know them and I fear them. Swifties, please be merciful when we come back. Welcome back. Let me get to a few of your comments before we keep going. Sorry, I've been running back and forth in and out of my apartment today because as you know, I'm in just a second bedroom. And so I've realized, oh crap, I need more water. Oh no, I need to wipe my my glasses. So I've finally got a lens wipe here. I'm gonna wipe my lenses for just a second while I do that because I can't see your comments while I'm wiping my lenses because I I can't see them. Please remember you can go to nightlightjoshua.com to follow me on social media. Remember the show is now available on Spotify. I'm gonna be posting the full episodes for the next two weeks on Spotify without ads. In the future, they'll be up there with ad breaks and interruptions eventually once I'm able to fully monetize the podcast. So. If you would like to be able to subscribe, you can do so on Apple Podcasts now to listen to the entire episodes ad-free. But for the next two weeks, I'm posting the whole thing up there. Part of the challenge of this is just figuring out the best way to go about doing all of this and figure out how to kind of keep it a going business interest, which is very difficult (laughs) to get moving. Y'all have been amazingly helpful in figuring this out. So thank you very, very much. Thanks also to those of you who have commented on my commentary about social media from last week about what to do with my activities on X. Your comments have been super helpful, like ultra helpful. I'm still thinking it through. We'll probably talk about that on tomorrow's show or Friday, but it has been helpful. So thank you. If you missed that, you can go to the Substack page. There's a post there about that. And there's also a YouTube video where I talk about that in more detail. So you can find that there. Remember, you can also follow me on YouTube at Nightlight Joshua for information about when episodes come on. You can click the notification bell to find out when something new has been posted and just continue to show your support for the show. Please do keep sharing it, keep talking, keep commenting, keep being the wonderful people that you are. And I'm delighted to have you on as well. 
And remember, you can watch this on TV like a TV show on TV. If you just use the YouTube app on your Roku or Amazon Fire or Apple TV Plus, I got a TiVo. Did you know TiVo still exists? Look, it's a TiVo remote. I got a TiVo, it's sitting right there in the corner of my studio. I was looking for something like a little streaming set-top box to put in the little TV in my corner. I was looking at a Chromecast. A 4K TiVo costs half what a 4K Chromecast cost. Half. Bought it on Amazon, works perfectly. It's crazy. So there's no excuse. <laughs> there's absolutely no excuse not to watch, especially now that there's all this technology. But for those of you who do, I greatly appreciate it. Thank you so much. Let me go back through some of your comments before we keep moving. Nora, I see, wrote on YouTube, there are several pending legal actions against Meta, et cetera. To some extent, I wonder if the public health advisories slash congressional hearing activities are just battle space preparation for the lawfare. Maybe to an extent, but I think that the, well, the attorneys who work for these big organizations are gonna warn all of these CEOs don't say anything that'll get us sued. <laughs> keep it very generic, keep it very general. The work is done by the lobbyists behind the scenes. The work is done by the influential trade organizations behind the scenes. You don't have to go out there and do anything remarkable. I, the fact that Mark Zuckerberg stood up, mind-blowing. That was really remarkable. He must have just gotten pissed and was just sick of dealing with Josh Hawley. He was like, fine, you want me to apologize? I'll stand up and apologize. But I think their primary role is just to not make things worse, to not get sued, and to not make the stock price drop. Um, tech stocks already have enough to deal with right now. They're in this big air, like period of correction on Wall Street, so uh, we'll, we'll see. Joseph writes on YouTube, tech companies fight regulation because the limits they'd then have to implement on their platforms would negatively affect how their ad algorithms work, which cuts into their bottom line. For sure. For sure. I also think that you know, as much as they've talked about wanting to be regulated, please regulate me, regulate me. They know that that there is immense competition right now. And they also know that AI is going to change everything all at once, very quickly. And I don't know that, although there was a hearing on AI yesterday, this week, I'm trying to remember the dates. I can't remember the dates of the hearing, but I think there's an AI hearing this week, actually. And Congress is talking about that. I think that might get regulated much more quickly than the children's privacy thing, the children's online safety thing, just because it's happened so fast and it is much more a matter of national security. That was one of the lines of questioning that came up with uh, the CEO of TikTok about the Chinese government. And also the director of the FBI, Christopher Wray, was testifying before a House committee today at the same time as that Senate committee hearing warning about China's malign influence and its malign activities on the United States. So I think that piece of it will get regulated more quickly. And maybe a savvy member of Congress could slip in some child protections inside of that legislation, whatever it turns out to be. So that might be a way to move this forward a little faster. Sarah, oh, Sarah, you're funny. Sarah wrote on YouTube, do they employ agents who think Tahiti is a very nice place to be? Referencing S.H.I.E.L.D. Oh, you geek. <laughs> That's pretty good. Uh, for those of you who don't know, that is a reference to the TV series Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and an episode about Tahiti. Uh, wow, that's 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 funny. That's funny. Um, 
That's cute. <laughs> I like that. Skylar the writer, hello. Good to have you with us today. Skylar the writer writes, I'm so tired of pointless, repetitive hearings that result in absolutely nothing. No laws, no bills, not even a tweet free of typos. Yes, I used semicolons with only 50% confidence I did it right. That's okay. Um, since you brought it up, you would use a semicolon to separate commas, a list of commas from another list of commas or to align two subject verb agreements. But don't, don't feel bad. Don't feel bad. I'm, I'm glad you're here. Please, please do not quit the scream. Skylar goes on to ask, and wasn't one of the quote unquote gay clients that the graphic lady went to SCOTUS, the Supreme Court of the United States over, not only straight and married, but also a graphic designer himself? Kind of. He was the genesis of one of the documents, one of the emails that was sent and included in the court documents. But yes, he is in the San Francisco Bay Area, straight, married, and a graphic designer. And so when his name came up, when reporters were like, what do you think of this? He was like, what? Had no idea that this was going to move forward. But again, that's why her challenge was successful, because you don't actually have to have a material challenge to go after something that's unconstitutional. You can pinch that preemptively, which is why those lawsuits are so kind of so powerful. I, oh, I also like what Skylar writes further down. Why can't the law be as simple as a law and order episode? We know the characters, the allegations, and the verdict all in 42 minutes plus commercials. Have you seen law and order lately? Law and order is not as simple as a law and order episode, which I kind of, which I kind of love in a way. Um, yeah, it's, if only it was, it was that simple. And Nora, a, a, a number of you um, have raised this point, and we've discussed this before, but Nora, I hear you when Nora writes, start the kids young, knowing that anything posted is out of their control in the future. I agree with that to an extent. I think that, and time will tell, but I think that because young people are growing up in a world where so much more of their lives are online, if not all of their lives are online. I think eventually they're going to get rather inured to it. I don't think that the shock of having some things in your past that were a little nutty is going to hit as hard as it hits now. Because the generations, like my generation, straddled the advent of the internet. I was the last generation who knew what it was like to grow up completely without the internet and then completely with it. Because I kind of hit it when I was a kid, but just at the very infancy. So for me, you know, the idea that you would go online and be an avatar of your real self, it just made sense. Like that was obviously what you were doing. The idea that you would have an email address with your name in it when Gmail started was unthinkable. Why would I want somebody to know my real name? Even that is a paradigm shift. Remember that? Even that was a paradigm shift. So I think that as these paradigms have shifted, every generation has adapted. Of course you would look for if you were looking for me online, of course you're gonna type in my name. You're gonna type in things from my past, right? You know I worked on NPR. So you'll type Joshua Johnson NPR, boop, and I pop right up. Or Joshua Johnson MSNBC, bing, and then there's the hit. You know to do that now. Previously that was unthinkable that you would ever have that kind of information on the public internet where people might see, <gasps> perish the thought. But now it's kind of obvious. So I think that as time goes on, generations after us and well beyond us will be more or less ignored to the idea that, yeah, my information's online. I think that this is happening partly, and this is 
kind of a farther example, but I'm fascinated by it, with the rise of websites like OnlyFans. I think the OnlyFans phenomenon and the, the rise of fans sites, OnlyFans, Just for Fans, For My Fans, there are a number of them. I find that amazing because it's changed the way people talk about sex and sexuality as being something connected to their economics or their identity or sexual expression or sexual liberation or just throwing off the shackles of corporate America and doing something that makes them way more money in a way shorter period of time. Like it's a whole other conversation that young adults are already having. And so as they reach my age and older, they will have had that from a much younger age and it won't be such a shock to them. So I don't know if that's what's gonna happen. I think to an extent, they're going to not think much about it because they've got other problems to solve. Climate change, for example. That's gonna be a much bigger concern than did you post something in the past? Like, did you have an OnlyFans or are you a furry or do you LARP or, you know, did you make some goofy TikTok meme, you know, or are you Rebecca Black and put out a song called Friday? Like, whatever it is. In the scheme of things that we have to deal with, I don't think that's gonna rate very high. And in a way that's great, because it means that this generation and the generations that come after are much more focused on the big stuff, and they hopefully will be less caught up in trivial transient matters. I hope that's the case, but, but we shall see. Thank you for all these comments. I wanna keep moving and talk about a few other things uh, one quick note that you should know about, I won't linger on this very long, um, but the fight over the border continues, including on Capitol Hill. Yesterday, Republicans met in a House committee to bring forth articles of impeachment against Alejandro Mayorkas, who is the Secretary of Homeland Security. They accuse him of being criminally de de uh, negligent, excuse me, criminally negligent on issues of the border well past the level of being merely delinquent or bad at his job to the extent that it would merit impeachment. I logged on last night to grab the video of the hearing where I could strip clips out of it and say, oh, I'll grab a soundbite and I'll put it on tomorrow's show. They were still going at midnight Washington time. It wasn't until about one in the morning, DC time, this was like a 13 hour hearing that they finally passed party line articles of impeachment against Alejandro Mayorkas. A cabinet member has not been impeached in about 150 years. This is super duper rare. The articles of impeachment, which are online, refer to Alejandro Mayorkas. It's powers article of, of impeachment. There are basically two articles of impeachment. One, willful and systemic refusal to comply with the law. The argument is that he chose to put policies in place that did not actually conform to federal immigration laws. The phrase catch and release comes up a lot in this part of the articles of impeachment. And they cite different laws and regulations that they argue, that supporters of these articles of impeachment argue, violated federal law. So that is one piece of this. The other, as I scroll down just a little bit, and also talks about how some of the money that was spent and, and on programs that, uh, that were not approved by Congress, the impact on the trade in fentanyl and human trafficking and, 
you know, terrorists on the watch list that have been interdicted. The other piece of this is breach of public trust that they put in as an argument for these articles of impeachment. I don't know that that is going to be enough to actually impeach him. In fact, it's almost certainly not going to be enough to impeach him because, as you remember, impeachment is a two-part process. The House has the power to accuse. The Senate has the power to convict. So articles of impeachment are almost certainly, I think, going to be pursued against Alejandro Mayorkas. He's going to be impeached almost certainly because to the U.S. House, I guess that's important right now. But the Senate is run by Democrats. So they're not going to convict him. It takes two-thirds of the Senate to convict. Donald Trump didn't reach two-thirds majority. He got he got pretty close. He got majorities, but he did not hit two-thirds. So he did not get convicted when the articles of impeachment, both of them, were brought against him. So the odds of this moving any further than just the articles of impeachment seem rather low. I don't think this is going to have an opportunity to get any farther because the Democrats in the Senate are never going to convict Alejandro Mayorkas. It's just not going to happen. So bit of political theater. Plus, you had House Speaker Mike Johnson speaking today. He gave his first floor speech as House Speaker on the floor of the House today, where he talked about the situation at the border, called out the Biden administration for being basically derelict of duty on that. And then it, the Democrats in the House called out their Republican colleagues for not just focusing on fixing the issue at the border, but going through this whole drama with Alejandro Mayorkas. By some accounts, he has testified before Congress more than any other cabinet member in the Biden administration, which I would not be surprised if that was true. So you have these two things kind of at the same time, where you've got the drama over the DHS secretary, but then also the fact that you could be doing something at the border and that there is a proposal, a bipartisan border deal that the Biden administration has already put its support behind, that senators on both sides have put their support behind, but that Donald Trump has opposed. And you even have some Republican senators now who are like, no, 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 we have to do something on the border. But Donald Trump has told them this needs to be dead on arrival. We cannot advance this bill. Basically a political effort to pin the border problems squarely on the Biden administration and then move something forward once Donald Trump is president. That, of course, depends on Donald Trump not only becoming the president, but also on Republicans maintaining control of the House and gaining control of the Senate. Based on the way that the political tea leaves are blowing right now, that's not impossible. We went through on this show a few weeks ago the latest Cook political report uh, prognostications about which way the Senate races that are up for grabs this year lean. A third of the Senate is up every two years because they're on six-year cycles. And based on what Cook Political Report says, it is quite possible that Republicans could take control of the U.S. Senate. Not a cinch, but possible. There aren't a whole lot of races, there aren't any races that are leaning Democratic, at least as far as Cook Political can see. And I would, I would trust their analysis. They are a nonpartisan analytical political uh, news source. So I think their analysis is worth following. But again, that depends on him even winning and also having a Congress that would lean his way. But that is going on with Alejandro Mayorkas now. Where that goes from here remains to be seen, but the odds of him being impeached, I think, are, are amazingly low, incredibly low. Let's talk about what's happening here and the people who are coming here 
to Las Vegas. Don't know if you heard, but there's a football game coming. Super Bowl. The Super Bowl is on its way here. Super Bowl 58 is on its way to Las Vegas. The city is all a Twitter. We're not in the Super Bowl, but whatever. There's all kinds of events that will be taking place. There's the opening night event at Allegiant Stadium where the fans are going to be able to show up. There's the Super Bowl experience at the Mandalay Bay, which should be a lot of fun. There is also a there's a big kids event. There's all kinds of volunteer opportunities. There's a uh, soul and gospel music celebration that's over at the, the Pearl Theater at the Palms. That's going to air on CBS. The Taste of the NFL, which should be fun. There's also an uh, NFL event called the Sober Bowl for people who don't want to consume alcohol, who don't want to drink during the Super Bowl, which is pretty cool. The Super Bowl breakfast, and then, of course, the big game that is on uh, February 11th between the Kansas City Chiefs and the San Francisco 49ers. I was hard-pressed to cheer for the 49ers this time, because even though I lived in San Francisco, I was so impressed by the Detroit Lions making it that far. They had not made it to a playoff game at all in 32 years, I think. And they are the only team in the Super Bowl era before it was just the AFC-NFC championship game in the Super Bowl era who has never made the Super Bowl. Every other team has made the Super Bowl at least once. The only one who never has is the Lions. So it would have been pretty remarkable to see them win, but they couldn't quite pull it out. The, they, were, they, were, they rolled over the 49ers in the beginning of the game. And then the Niners just very steadily kind of worked their way back and worked their way back and then beat the Chiefs 34 to 24. So lots going on there. Also, we're getting a new baseball team. The A's are moving, just like the Raiders moved from Oakland. The A's are getting ready to move from Oakland. And now it looks like the site of the new A's ballpark is about to get cleared away. The Tropicana, which is near the south end of the Strip, it's across from the MGM Grand and directly across from uh, the Excalibur in New York, New York, is getting ready to close. They're supposed to close by this April to make room for the ballpark, which will be basically on the Las Vegas Strip as if we needed more traffic. The A's ballpark is going to be... The, the Tropicana, rather, is going to be torn down to make room for the A's ballpark. It's one of the very oldest, if not the oldest, hotels on the Strip. A lot of other hotels have been built and imploded in that time. The Tropicana is absolutely showing its age. And that is where they're going to build the baseball stadium at a cost of well over a billion dollars. There's still some controversy over the funding plan for it, but I think it's... I think it's going to happen. I think it's going to get done. And you can see, like, if you just look, like, this is a picture of the inside of the Tropicana. It's, uh, it's, it's dated. <laughs> it needs a little love. And it, it is definitely one of the older resorts on the Strip. So that one's going to be moving. So that's kind of exciting. I find that a little bit exciting. But the other excitement here has to do with the intersection of sports and politics and pop culture. This past weekend, as I told you on the show on Friday... Donald Trump came to do a rally here in Las Vegas. Kamala Harris also did a rally in Las Vegas on Saturday around the same time, not quite exactly the same time. But there was also another gathering of conservatives here in Las Vegas that is not, a hap not that happy with the GOP right now. It was a convention of a group called Turning Point Action, which Turning Point USA is a group that appeals to younger conservatives. And they spent a lot of that time venting their frustrations with the Republican Party and with its chairwoman, Ronna McDaniel. The problem with some of the, the elements that showed up at this event 
is that they represent some of the conspiracy theory rabbit holes of the internet. Mike Lindell, the MyPillow guy, he was there and a number of his folks were there. They did a long presentation about a variety of things related to election security, which if you think anyone is a an honest broker on that, it is not Mike Lindell. Donald Trump Jr. was there. He spoke at this Turning Points conference. Charlie Kirk is the guy behind Turning Point, um, conservative activist radio host who has said an array of very horrible and at times racist and, and nasty things. But the latest nasty thing that is being said is about our girl Taylor Swift. Now, I want to preface this first of all because, hi Swifties, I just want to, I'm going to cop to this right off, off top. I like Taylor Swift a great deal. I'm not a Swifty, but I think she's awesome. But let's just be clear, the reason we're talking about this is not about Taylor Swift. And if you are watching this now or later, if you're watching the video of this, if you're hearing the podcast of this, I just want to be clear. Most of the people who are talking about Taylor Swift right now, they don't know a damn thing about her. They're just piling on because they know Taylor's popular and they want to be popular too. It's, it's very high school mean girls, and I'm sorry that you have to be in the middle of this. I think your fandom of Taylor Swift is beautiful. She's amazing, and she's brilliant, and she's radiant, and she's lovely, and all she's trying to do is spread love and take care of the people around her, and you should be able to enjoy that without adults taking a big dump all over it and making it about something stupid. So on behalf of those of us who are older than you but kind of get it, I'm sorry you even have to be a part of this conversation. She should just be able to make great music and kiss Travis Kelsey and go on with her life, but she can't, and I'm sorry. But that's the way rock and roll works. Elvis Presley wasn't allowed to just make his music because he was believed to be kind of a satanic sex symbol. And also he was consorting with Negroes and singing black music. So he could not be apolitical. The Beatles could not be apolitical. Madonna could not be apolitical. None of these stars could ever be apolitical. They just can't because that's the way pop culture works. It's popular, but it influences the culture. And politics is part of culture. So if you're a Swifty and you're annoyed at the fact that we're even having this conversation, just know it's not personal. This is not about Taylor Swift. This isn't even about you as a fan. This is in the nature of American politics, and it's goofy. But it's not new. So take a breath. It's not a big deal. This too shall pass. For those of you who don't know exactly what happened, there was there's a piece in the Washington Post that kind of breaks it down. There was a, an array of posts that have been put online that started kind of in the right-wing conservative conspiracy theory blabosphere. Philip Bump writes about this and about kind of the way that this started. And in his Washington Post piece, he writes, the iteration that attracted perhaps the most attention, though, came from former presidential candidate and Donald Trump cheerleader Vivek Ramaswamy, speaking of people who suddenly emerged in the public consciousness to polarizing effect. In a social media post, a prominent right-wing conspiracy theorist linked Swift to, let's see here, ah, yes, George Soros. In response, Ramaswamy offered a prediction. Quote, I wonder who's going to win the Super Bowl next month, and I wonder if there's a major presidential endorsement coming from an artificially, culturally propped up couple this fall. Just some wild speculation over here. Let's see how it ages over the next eight months. There's the post from Vivek Ramaswamy. That 
began to make this unravel even farther. Philip Bump writes, the implication is that the Chiefs are being ushered to the Super Bowl somehow to secure Swift's endorsement for President Biden. This makes a lot of sense because the Chiefs haven't been to the Super Bowl since uh, last year when they won. But before that, they hadn't been since, well, two years before. But that one they lost. But they'd won the year before that. See how goofy this is? That's basically where this came from. So Vivek Ramaswamy lost his presidential bid. Some right-wing conspiracy theorists suggest something. Vivek Ramaswamy piles onto it, and now it's a thing. The idea that they are an artificially propped up, culturally propped up power couple. I mean, insofar as that every NFL game that the Chiefs play, there's a prominent shot of Taylor Swift very frequently. I guess that makes them artificially propped up. But her fan base is absolutely not artificial, and the Kansas City Chiefs are absolutely not, not an artificial football team. Like, they actually won the Super Bowl. So they're the defending champion Super Bowl winners, and you've got Taylor Swift, <laughs> who's kind of the defending champion pop star. So artificial? Mm. I'm not sure I'd call it that. Where does this escalate? It escalates when Donald Trump got involved in it. There's a piece in Rolling Stone reported by a number of solid reporters, including Asawan Subsang, who used to be with the Daily Beast, noting that, oh gosh, now I need a subscription to Rolling Stone. I guess I have to subscribe to Rolling Stone. Basically, one source close to Donald Trump said that they are going to wage what he described, what the source described, as a holy war on Taylor Swift, particularly if she starts backing Democrats in 2020. Here's the thing, she's already backed Democrats in 2020. And there is no real question that the Democrats are looking for more support from Taylor Swift and from stars like Taylor Swift. There's a New York Times piece about Democrats beginning to marshal celebrities and social media personalities to show their support for Joe Biden's reelection and for Democrats further down the ticket. Not new, right? This is what's been happening for years and years. One of the possibilities, NBC reported this, is holding a fundraiser with Joe Biden, Barack Obama, and Bill Clinton all together. That would make perfect sense. That would make a lot of sense. And it would be something that the Republicans really cannot do because, you know, George H.W. Bush is, you know, has passed. George W. Bush is not a fan of Donald Trump. So they're not going to be standing on a stage together. I would be stunned dumbfounded if they ended up on a stage together. So Democrats being able to do that is something that they can point to Republicans and say, see, you can't do this with the previous Republican president, but you can do this with us. But the way that the Times writes it, obviously Taylor Swift is kind of the brass ring that they're all going for. It notes that she did endorse Joe Biden in 2020, so her endorsement wouldn't really be a shock. Also notes that last year, a single Instagram post of hers led to 35,000 new voter registrations. She basically, she wasn't telling people who to vote for. She was just reminding them, you need to register to vote. Put a vote.org link on there, 35,000 people signed up. Times also notes 
Governor Gavin Newsom of California, a top Biden surrogate, all but begged Ms. Swift to become more involved in Mr. Biden's campaign when he spoke to reporters after a Republican primary debate in September. Taylor Swift stands tall and unique, he said. What she was able to accomplish just in getting young people activated to consider that they have a voice and that they should have a choice in the next election, I think is profoundly powerful, unquote. Pause right there. Having a choice in the next election is probably not something Democrats should be talking about too loudly. Because a lot of Democrats are not thrilled with the idea that Joe Biden is all they've got. This could end up being 2016 all over again, where the party threw way too much energy behind Hillary Clinton and tried to get people not to think about Bernie Sanders. Granted, the party did change the power of superdelegates among the changes it made in a midterm party meeting. They met in Chicago, and that was one of the reasons why superdelegates are not what they once were, because of the whole Bernie Sanders-Hillary Clinton drama. But I would think the party had learned that lesson, especially with Democrats saying, okay, I guess we'll, fine, he, I guess he, he will vote for him. How, how are his ankles? Do his ankles feel good? Are his hips healthy? Is he, is he drinking his Activia on a daily basis? Okay, fine, we'll vote for him. So I don't know about talking about having a choice in the next election. Mm, don't know. Back to the Times piece. The chatter around Ms. Swift and the potential of reaching her 279 million Instagram followers reached such intensity that the Biden team urged applicants in a job posting for a social media position not to describe their Taylor Swift strategy. The campaign had enough suggestions already. One idea that has been tossed around, a bit in jest, sending the president to a stop on Ms. Swift's Eras Tour. That's a bad idea. Anyone who has looked at the schedule for the Eras Tour knows she's done touring the U.S. She's touring internationally now. She's been on that tour since like last May, March, something like that. Started in Glendale, came to Las Vegas and kept moving. But she's she's going to the whole thing about like, how is Taylor going to make it back in time for the Super Bowl to watch Travis Kelsey play? She's in Tokyo. She's going to have to fly. Over time zones, she'll make it in time, but like she's going to Dublin and Liverpool and Paris and everywhere else. She's not going to be here. So if you want to send Joe Biden out of the country for a campaign stop, go right ahead. This is why you need Swifties or people who know Google to write about Taylor Swift. This is exactly why. But the thing about the Joe Biden posting is actually true. I wonder if I can find it real quick. Hold on just one second. I'm going to see if I can find it. Work with us. I wonder if they've already hired this person, but they did indeed. I remember my partner and I saw it and we were looking at it and had a very good laugh about it. Mobilization, director of digital partnership. I'll, I'll see if I can find it. I'll see if I can. They're, they're hiring a bunch of people, goodness sake. But anyway, yes, that is exactly, they did, they did mention that. So the idea that Taylor Swift could be valuable to them, known quantity, absolutely. This is all a very goofy controversy. I don't love it, but I do think it reveals something unfortunate and uncomfortable about us culturally. The Taylor Swift phenomenon, first of all, is not a matter of theory. Paramount put out a press release regarding the ratings for the AFC championship game, the one where the Kansas City Chiefs beat the Baltimore Ravens to go to the Super Bowl said that it averaged more than 55 million viewers. It was the most watched AFC championship game ever. 
averaging 55.473 million viewers, at least in the early window of the game. Previous record was 54.850 viewers. That was Jet Steelers back in 2011. So Taylor Swift has been great for the NFL. Let's just, let's just not pretend it's not. In an era where we talk so much about the fragmentation of media, Taylor Swift is good for the NFL. And I think it makes a lot of sense because women drive most purchasing decisions. Marketers know women generally drive about 75% of all purchasing decisions. So having a service or a product that has no appeal to women is way, way harder. That's why ESPN is so valuable because it has an extremely strong standing with young men. That's why Adult Swim from Cartoon Network is amazingly successful because it may not attract a whole bunch of people, but it attracts a very concentrated core of particularly young men in their 20s. That's why they're so valuable. But Taylor Swift, phew, between Taylor Swift and Beyonce, right? Those were just sort of the, the economic underpinning of the entire entertainment industry for a while. When she performed at Levi Stadium in Santa Clara, the fans jumped up and down so much that it registered at the seismograph at the U.S. Geological Survey. No joke. Or no cap, I guess is what the kids are saying. Bottom line is it's true. So there is a lot of <laughs> energy there, and companies are capitalizing on this in huge ways. Of course politics is going to capitalize on this. Like I said, to however many Swifties may be watching, and by the way, if you are a Swifty and you're watching and I'm getting some of this wrong, please put a comment in the chat. I would love to be corrected on this. You're the expert, not me. But I am an expert on media. And this is what media does. I've been covering politics for a long time. This is what politics does. This is what industry does. It produces as little as possible to consume as much as possible, to earn as much as possible. That's the way this works. I think the whole beauty of Taylor is not just that she is her own person, but that she is her own business person. The enterprise of Taylor Swift, reclaiming her music, putting out Taylor's version of all of these different hits. That was a whole public conversation that she had with the world and with her fans to say, this is what's happening to me and I'm not going to be silent about it. Good for you. She should talk about it. And I think the fact that her fans know makes them a little bit more savvy too. In fact, the real Taylor Swift fight right now is not with Trump, it's with TikTok. Because the company, the music publisher that, that owns those rights, Universal Music Group, said it could not reach a deal with TikTok to keep putting its music on there. Whenever you hear a song on TikTok or Instagram or any social network, the Companies, the publishing companies that own the licenses to that music have made a deal. They get paid when you put that song inside of your clip. Now, that presumably helps them make more money too, but you don't just get to use music because, well, it's social media. Can't we just use anything? No, absolutely not. Someone acquired permission to use that for a limited time under limited circumstances. That's why you can only put clips of a certain length on Instagram and TikTok. Well, Universal Music Group says it couldn't reach a deal, accused TikTok of trying to bully them into a lower deal. And so as of today, all those tracks will disappear from TikTok. And guess what artists we're talking about? We're talking about Taylor Swift, Bad Bunny, Sting, The Weeknd, 
Alicia Keys, SZA, and on and on. Billie Eilish, Drake, Kendrick Lamar, Rosalia, Harry Styles, Ariana Grande, Justin Bieber, Adele, U2, Elton John, and on. Pearl, Bob Dylan, Pearl Jam, Post Malone, Coldplay. Like, this is the real fight. Because this is the cultural influence that I think actually matters to the people who consume Taylor Swift's music. Not this goofiness of Donald Trump declaring a holy war on Taylor Swift. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> if you feel like going after Swifties is a strong political strategy, knock yourself out. But there's a bigger problem here. And I think the fans of Taylor Swift get this. I think decent, thoughtful people get this. I think it's part of what makes it feel so goofy. It just reminds me of one of the most deleterious, destructive, dumb aspects of today's political discourse. And this happens on the left and the right. I saw this when I worked at MSNBC. It may be cringe every time, but I, it's part of the business of what they do, so I don't think it's gonna change. It is kind of the reason that Fox News seems to exist nowadays. And it's something that thankfully CNN has gotten away from in a great part. It's this idea that if I can convince you that we hate the same people, that we can be fooled into believing that we actually like each other. That's bull. Brene Brown has a term for that. It's called common enemy intimacy. She writes about it in her book, Braving the Wilderness. And she calls it a form of counterfeit connection. She writes, it's fuel that runs hot, burns fast, and leaves a trail of polluted emotion. It's the kind of intimacy that can leave us with the intense regrets of an integrity hangover. I like the way she puts that. This idea that I hate what you hate, so I guess we like each other, is kind of lame. But it definitely connects to sports. Just because we're in the stands booing against the same team doesn't mean we're rooting for the same team. There are plenty of teams that don't like the Dallas Cowboys. That doesn't mean they're all fans of the same team. And I think that people who engage in this kind of political nonsense, trying to be on the vanguard of the next person we're supposed to despise, are selling a form of counterfeit connection that too many Americans fall for all the time. You hear it all the time on the right and the left. So much of MSNBC's schedule is just based on, look at what Trump did today, and I understand it because a lot of those things need to be discussed. But at a certain point, we have to realize that sharing this kind of common enemy intimacy doesn't make us feel better. It doesn't make us feel safer. It doesn't make us feel seen because we're not seen. We're looking at this adversary, which means we're not looking at each other. And the people who just tell you who to hate, they don't care about you because they can't even see you. They're not looking at you. They want you to look at them. And I think the idea that the people who hate or want to make you think that they actually hate Taylor Swift as if they really give a damn about her. I think those are people who, like Mr. Ramaswamy after getting his ass kicked in Iowa, just need a little more attention for a little while longer. Because that's what they do. They don't have anything to offer. Taylor has everything to offer.
of course they're going to pick on her. It was just a matter of time. I hope Swifties ignore it. I hope voters ignore it. Well, either ignore it or take seriously that there is a real moral bankruptcy in dragging Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey into all of this. If you vote for someone, vote on their policy, vote whether you believe in them, vote whether they're actually going to do right by the country. But for God's sake, Taylor Swift, Taylor freaking Swift, that's the best you got of all the things to go after. Taylor Swift, God, take several seats, please. I want to read through some of your comments. We'll go through this in just a minute. I'll read through your comments and then I have some one last thing to share with you about one of my childhood obsessions. We talked about how Taylor Swift's, this controversy around Taylor Swift, not anything to do with her, is meant to kind of continue to drive these wedges that are constantly driven. Well, I think that there's one thing I have looked at as, as a kid and now as an adult. It's taught me a lot about what it takes to bring people together and the joy of bringing people together. It's an unlikely thing. I won't bend your ear about it too much, but there's a new theme park coming, y'all. I'm a big theme park fan, and this one looks really cool. I know theme parks get a very bad rap. Some of them deserve it. But I learned a lot from the experience of visiting these. Also, I think that theme park vacations are complex, and it takes a little bit of guidance to be able to do them well. I'll tell you about the new park that's coming and what I learned as a kid growing up in Florida, going to these parks, and how it affected my view on connection, on belonging, even on democracy. A stretch, you say? A theme park is a pillar of democracy? Nay, nay. I'll prove it to you before we go. Let's get to a few of your comments before we go. Uh, Nora, I saw one of your comments about AI-generated nudes. I appreciate you bringing that up because that slipped my mind in our conversation about online safety, but also related to Taylor Swift. You may or may not have heard that there were a number of AI-generated, basically deep fake, explicit images, supposedly of Taylor Swift, that proliferated on X, the social network formerly known as Twitter and that X basically blocked all searches, disabled searches for Taylor Swift over the weekend, completely, because a bunch of these images kind of flooded X. They have since re-enabled the search. A statement from the company to The Hollywood Reporter says, in part, quote, we will continue to be vigilant for any attempt to spread this content and we'll remove it if we find it, unquote. So now you are again able to search for Taylor Swift at all. But this is one of the things that was kind of in the background before today's hearing about online child safety. By one account from a site called The Daily Dot, these images were seen at least 22 million times before X tried to remove the post. Not that 22 million people shared them, but that 22 million people saw them. What they did with them beyond that is, is unclear. But that is another aspect of all this that I almost forgot to mention. So Nora, thank you for bringing it up. Let me get to some of your comments on this. Some of y'all are wild. Your comments do make, do make me giggle. Um, both in the online safety conversation, but particularly the Taylor Swift conversation and about Vegas. 
Nora also wrote, start the kids young, knowing that anything posted is out of their control in the future, for sure. I am glad that there's a greater effort to talk about this. And young adults are also talking about this among themselves, which is, which is absolutely necessary. We, oh, Skylar also wrote, I saw that hearing streamed on social media last night and thought it was a recording. I can't believe they were up until the wee hours of the night on whatever this is all about. They were indeed, and one of the reasons they were up so late is because there were a bunch of amendments that were put forward to the article of impeachment, none of which I think passed. But there can be an amendment, then there was an amendment to an amendment, then an amendment to an amendment to the revision, and on and on, and, and Robert's Rules of Order, and parliamentary procedure, and is this amendment germane to the, to the main item? You can't basically you can't put forward an amendment that has nothing to do with the item on the table. And so back and forth and back and forth. And it just kind of kept moving for hours and hours. And it got really silly at a point. That's why the meeting took so long. But boy, that meeting took a while. Sarah wrote the Lions versus 49ers game was worthy. Yes, it was. It was very, very good. I, I watched both of the, the games and the the Chiefs-Ravens game looked a little bit more like a rout. And the Ravens just kept getting more and more frustrated as the day went on. And it looked like, okay, they're melting down. But the Niners-Lions game, that was not a meltdown. The, the Niners beat the Lions. The Lions came roaring out in the first quarter, and they just couldn't hold on to it. But they they played really hard. But the, the Chiefs-Ravens game just looked like, I don't know. Uh, Karina, with regard to the Tropicana, writes, I'm already sad about the Trop getting torn down for the new stadium. Traffic shenanigans at the south end of the Strip is going to be wild. Yes. Yeah. It's going to be just awful. I, I anticipated it, so it's real bad down there. And it's it's not as bad as it had been. They have finally gotten most of the Formula One construction deconstructed, including a temporary overpass, which was very strange. But they finally gotten that taken care of. So yeah, it's gonna be it's gonna be pretty nutty. I don't know what we're gonna do in terms of mass transit, but it is not gonna be easy to drive the strip. And I don't know how they're gonna handle the volume of cars there. It's just it's insane. And there are already other arenas. At least Allegiant Stadium, where the Super Bowl is going to be, is on the other side of Interstate 15. I-15 is just west of the Las Vegas Strip. And on the other side of I-15 is Allegiant Stadium. The, the A's ballpark is going to be on the Las Vegas Strip, on Las Vegas Boulevard. I don't know how that's supposed to work. I have no idea how that's supposed to work, but we'll see. I, 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 I don't know. Um, Karina also writes, best thing about the trop was that it always smelled like suntan lotion, LOL. Stayed there in 2012 after the Renos renovations. Classic joint, but Vegas can't help but reinvent itself. No, it can't. Which is kind of one of the nicest things about Las Vegas is that it is in this constant active renovation and, and reinvention. And not all the reinventions have to do with the strip. That's kind of nice. Most of them do. And Nevada has all kinds of other social issues, shortage of teachers being one of them. But yeah, it's it's interesting to be here like as it's as it's reinventing itself. KP Koopa on YouTube. Hello, good to see you. KP Koopa writes, I find it absolutely entertaining correcting my conservative friends accusing Swift of dating Kelsey for his money. Yeah, I don't think. Let me tell you something. <laughs> if Travis Kelsey does Taylor Swift wrong, Taylor Swift is gonna buy the Kansas City Chiefs. She's gonna turn it 
into a girls volleyball team that sponsors a rhythmic gymnastics team for trans women. And she is going to make the new head coach of that team, Travis Kelsey. And then when Travis Kelsey says, but I'm not qualified to do this, then she's going to demote him to equipment manager. And then when he says, I refuse to do this job, then she's going to sue him for breach of contract. That's what's going to happen. So if you think that she needs Travis Kelsey for anything resembling money, okay, hold that thought. Hold that thought. I would love, she has the money in the cracks of her couch to buy the Kansas City Chiefs. She don't need him for his money, but whatever. Karina, I see you pegged onto this as well. Karina writes, I like watching MAGA brains explode with conspiracies about a mid-30s billionaire liberal woman. They want her to be dating Travis for his money. Meanwhile, she's the billionaire. I hear you on that, Karina. I, I guess, you know, and, and it, is, it is pretty wild that this has any currency, although I'm not clear that we are actually seeing something that is effective. We have seen the message go out. I haven't really seen a lot of reporting on whether or not it's coming back with any kind of impact. Like there's... I haven't seen any polling. I we you know we don't have another primary for a little while. Like I don't know if this is going to make a difference. You know, Nevada's primary is is, is next week, but uh, I just I don't I don't know that this is going to matter. I really don't think this is going to matter significantly beyond this burst of attention. I just don't I don't see it. I just don't see it. I I, I hope that this is just going to be kind of a blip, and then it'll move on. Life will go on and it just won't, it just won't matter. I like Joseph's idea. Beyonce Swift 24, the register to vote tour. Could you imagine if the two of them were on a ticket? The problem would be who would be the president and who would be the VP, right? That would be the only difficulty because mm, I don't, uh, I don't know. I don't know. Um, and then Skylar, I see about the, the Super Bowl, Skylar writes, I'm not a fan of that American Quidditch game. <laughs> but I do want to see Usher's halftime performance, even though I'm still mad the NFL did Kaepernick so dirty. Yeah. And in a, it, it's such a shift from when, like, Beyonce did the Super Bowl halftime show at Levi Stadium in Santa Clara, which was all black power imagery. And, you know, we were still, Kaepernick's afro was still warm, just in our memory. And to see kind of where it's gone from there is is fascinating. Though I'm looking forward to Usher's show. He's got a single out called Good Good, which I really liked. I heard it today for the very first time. It was him. It's him, 21 Savage, and a young woman singing on it whose name I, Summer something, whose name I can't recall. Nice track. Really nice track. He's, he's held up well. He's held up very well as far as I'm concerned. Thank you all for your comments. Uh, I, I, again, I, I, I always struggle with telling stories like this because it just feels like social media goofiness and it just makes me a little crazy and I don't like <laughs> indulging crazy. I just don't like indulging crazy. But that is kind of where we are in this in this weird situation. Um, oh, Holly, I see your post that you just put up. Have you read Steve Allman's treatise on football? I have not. 
uh, drop a link in the chat. I'm not familiar with that. If, if you have a link, to, oh no, no, it may not let you drop a link. Don't do that. Don't, 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 don't do that. I will look for it myself. But no, I'm not familiar with that. I, I, but don't put a link in the chat. Sometimes YouTube will, will ding you for that, or the comment moderation will kind of come after you. But not familiar with it. I may go check that out. I will say a brief word about theme parks, and then I will take off. Um, Y'all have been very kind to to listen for so long. By the way, before I do that, uh, please note that I will be experimenting with some nighttime streams soon, probably next week or the week after, not right away, but we'll be experimenting with that as well. This time will not go away, but I'm trying to figure out what the most optimal time is to do this stream. It looks like the 2 p.m. hour on the East Coast is not as busy as the 3 p.m. hour or the 4 p.m. hour for that matter. So I'm trying to figure out when the best times are to do this to build the audience as strongly as possible. Nighttime might also be, a, be the right time. So in the next week or two, I'm going to experiment with doing this show as normal at the same time we do it normally and then repeating the show, basically the exact same content in the evening, probably from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern, roughly. If you miss one, you'll catch it on the other. You can be part of one, be part of both, entirely up to you. If the evening is more convenient, watch in the evening. But it'll just give me some more data so I can try to keep this thing going and growing. But I will have more on that soon. And I appreciate also your comments on my post on using social media. There is a post on nightlightshow.com that I called Why Quit Social Media and Why Come Back, which has to do with my thought process around using social media. Also, it links to the video that I did about my thought process on using social media. It's so weird to promote a video of myself where there's kind of the two of us on the screen at the same time, which I find fascinating. But check that out online at nightlightshow.com. The links are at nightlightjoshua.com to go to the Substack and let me know what you think. One more thing that I found fun that I just want to share with you. And I'll tell you that this fun thing is part of another shift that I'm making in the show that I need to do much more consistently. I do it sometimes. I don't do it enough. And I feel bad about it. And I don't want to beat myself up or make it sound like I've, you know, slandered somebody. But uh, I, I just want to show you this. I am from Florida, born and raised. I grew up going to Disney World a lot as a kid. I am that nerd who loved Epcot Center and used to like sing along with the songs as they taught us about nutrition or whatever it is. Um, watch the fireworks display and it always just kind of turned me on to, to see it. Well, there is a new theme park coming to Orlando near the Universal Orlando Resort. It's an expansion of Universal. It's a park that's been in the works for a while, and we're just beginning to see some excerpts of it. Yesterday, Universal Parks and Resorts dropped a video previewing the park. It is called Epic Universe, and it is going to open kind of between where the, re the original theme park is and the Orange County Convention Center in Orlando. It will have five lands. Uh, one of them will have a, a kind of a dueling coasters ride at the very beginning of the park. And then they're going to be themed around various popular properties and franchises. One of them is themed around How to Train Your Dragon, which will include a ride where you get to feel what it's like to ride on the back of a dragon. One of them will be called Dark Universe, which is themed around classic monsters from Universal movies, Frankenstein, Wolfman, The Mummy, Dracula, and so on. 
There will be another area themed around Nintendo called Super Nintendo World. One area themed around Harry Potter. The Wizarding World of Harry Potter Ministry of Magic. Part of it is set in the Fantastic Beasts 1920s Paris. Another part of it is set in the building of the Ministry of Magic from Harry Potter. There will also be another Super Nintendo World. There's one at the park in Los Angeles. There'll be one at the park in Orlando where there are rides themed around Mario Kart and Donkey Kong. And you can have these interactive experiences with all of the various characters from from Nintendo games and interactive rides and a Mario Kart ride similar to the one that is in Los Angeles. So they dropped all of those details today. Theme parks have been amazingly resilient just as a business story. We've talked a lot about the disruption of the media, right? People are watching TV differently. People are watching movies differently. They're consuming content online differently. What's going to happen to the media? When I worked at NBC Universal as an anchor on MSNBC and for NBC News, one of the things that constantly came up as the company talked about the state of the overall company was how well the theme parks are doing. Theme parks took a hit during COVID. And after COVID restrictions relaxed, they boomed more than they had been before. Theme parks are a growth industry. I know that sounds weird, but it is true. One of the few parts of the entire portfolio of the Universal Parks and Resorts, of, of NBC Universal, that consistently did well was parks and resorts. Hollywood, Florida, Singapore, they're doing great. Osaka, Japan, they do fantastically well. So much so that Universal is actually opening three parks. They're going to open a park in Texas that's all kids and family attractions year-round. And they're going to open a permanent Halloween Horror Nights attraction. For those who don't know, Halloween Horror Nights is an annual event that they do at the parks where at night it's a separate ticketed event where they turn some of the sound stages and other areas into very elaborate haunted houses. There are also performers kind of roaming the streets of the parks, like jumping out and scaring things. They have special performances. They do a live stage show themed around Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure every year that has very topical pop culture and political humor that is extremely funny. It is an Excellent live show. It is not for children, but it is an amazing show every year. I don't know how they do it, but they do it. And they're going to make a year-round Halloween Horror Nights. Guess where it's going to be? Vegas. They are building a year-round Halloween Horror Nights attraction here in Las Vegas. That's how big the demand is for themed experiences. It's so big, they can't build enough theme parks fast enough to meet the demand. They are building standalone theme parks. This is a good business to be in. And one of the things that I love about that, about that is, first of all, I enjoy these themed experiences. I think they're a lot of fun. They are getting increasingly expensive. So I'm not an apologist for them. I think a lot of the tickets to these are way too high. So does Disney. Bob Iger, when he became the chairman again, lowered some of the price increases that his predecessor, Bob Chapek, put in place. So Disney tickets are still getting more expensive, but the prices dropped because even Disney realized they're charging too much. Granted, they're raising the prices again, but at a different rate. And the cost of a universal vacation is high, especially if you get something like an express pass so you can zip in and off of the rides. 
I strongly recommend an Express Pass if you do Universal. It more than pays for itself, just in not standing around in lines. That's pro tip number one if you do that. Disney's got a whole other system. Disney's system is you need a computer science degree. I wouldn't do that. The other thing I'd recommend is riding single rider. There's one ride called the Velocicoaster, which is one of the bestest, best of the bestity best <laughs> roller coasters that was ever created. Velocicoaster, and I'll show you if, because I know that you, you love roller coasters, right? Everyone here likes roller coasters, of course. This is what Velocicoaster looks like. I hope you're not eating lunch because this will definitely make you a little motion sick. But it is an amazing ride. Velocicoaster, we rode it opening weekend. The wait time was 90 minutes, but there is a single rider line, single rider line there where they'll, if they need one or two people, they'll just grab people from single rider who aren't in larger groups and you can ride as a single rider. My partner and I, we rode Velocicoaster single rider. 10 minutes we waited in line. We did not wait in the larger line and we ended up sitting side by side because you sit two abreast. So we still got to ride together. Single rider is the vibe. Velocicoaster, Spider-Man, Lots of the rides that have single rider, just do single rider. Ride it separately and then get together after the ride's over and then you can talk about it. Strongly recommend, strongly recommend. But the other thing that I kind of took from this as a little kid that I didn't even realize until after I was more grown up is that I had been learning something as kind of a budding communicator, you know, what we now call a content creator that I didn't think I needed to know. It wasn't until I was older that I realized the deep complexity of a theme park. And it's not just making all the rides work and having enough food at all the different kiosks and dealing with kids who get lost from their parents and making sure that the fireworks show is safe and that you've got, you know, fire suppression technology and getting everybody costumed and HR and what happens if, you know, if there's a lightning storm and we have to shut rides down. It was more than that, although that is a huge part of it. It was this idea that you are able to create an experience where everything that happens around you feels like it was built just for you. That every single person, and I've had multiple experiences in these parks, including recently, where I was like, this was amazing. Where every single person is on the same accord that we're here to take care of people. And if you're here, you are our priority. Just because you showed up, we're gonna show you a great time. Some days are great, some days are not. But I've had a lot of experiences, particularly as a kid and even as an adult, where it was like, this was amazing. Like everybody, it was so simple for everyone to be like, oh yeah, come on. Oh yeah, I can help you with that. Are you, do you need some help with something? Sure, it's right over there. Where it's just all these little acts that when they line up, make a huge difference. And it was just a little burst of utopia that I needed at that time that was sort of like, yeah, I know you're doing a job. I know this is not real, but you guys really put on a great show for me today. Thank you so much. That was, this was a blast. And it made me want to come back. But even more than that, I think what hit me is remembering how much I loved them as a kid and then feeling that again, whether it was the fireworks show or being on a ride or watching you know, a, a, a live event at the park or just kind of like hearing the music and seeing the crowds and the theming and everything or people who are like buying a wand from Ollivanders over in Harry Potter, that one of the Harry Potter experiences, which by the way, yes, I do have a wand. Uh, I won it 
as a new employee at NBCU, wanted in my employee orientation. I got Dumbledore's wand, naturally. When I see all these people engage in these things that we know are not real, but they're just kind of delighted, I remember looking at it and feeling that sense of delight and then immediately shutting it down emotionally. I clipped it off. I forced myself not to feel that way. And I got into that serious, analytical, level-headed space again. I, I did not want to let that in. I remember that feeling. And I remember feeling very convicted by it. Like, what the hell was that? And it happened over and over when I was at the parks. It would happen over and over when I was on the rides. It happened over and over that I had experiences, not all of them, but enough of them, where I would kind of get caught up and I would remember what it was like to be a kid and then I shut it down real hard and I went back to being an adult. And it took me a minute to kind of process what the hell that was. And I think there's something that happens when we become adults that makes joy seem, and Brene Brown talks about this too, that makes joy feel like foreboding. The vulnerability of getting swept up in something feels immature and unsafe. And it makes us concerned about our status to others, about our standing with others, about being in control. And that momentary loss of control at a time when the world feels like it's spinning out of control, feels risky on so many levels that are hard to articulate that we just shut it down and go back to being grownups. And when that clicked for me, I thought, well, F this. I don't wanna be that person, but it's hard not to be. I mean, I covered Washington for three years during the Trump administration. I covered New York during COVID. I was in New York when COVID hit. And so the last several years of my life have been spent trying to protect that part of me that feels wonder. I think we, I don't think America is just a country that's lost hope or that's lost faith. My real concern is that we've lost wonder, that we've lost our capacity to go, wow. I mean, think about it. What was the last thing that you dissolved into emotionally that just let you go, wow, and you didn't feel any need to shut that off, to shut that off or control it or limit it or kind of get back to being a grown-up? It doesn't happen often. And I'm not saying you got to have it every single day where you're like walk in the woods and just kind of like run your hands along the leaves and go, you know, sing Kumbaya. I'm not talking about that. But it's so hard to let that go and just play, to just submit to an experience that you paid for, of course, but that is designed to make you feel something, to make a memory, to feel something magical. That's childish. The world's a terrible place. Corporations are the enemy of everyday people. They don't pay enough money. They're probably polluting the environment. I bet they're giving donations to insert political per party or person here, and I can't just deal with that anymore, and I can't be that anymore. I have to see the world for what it really is. All true. 
not the point. Does anything bring you wonder? Does anything wrap you up? Does anything bring tears of joy to your eyes? And would you let it? I remember watching the fireworks show over the lagoon at Universal Studios Florida. And I just burst into tears because it was all these movies that I grew up with and the music and the fireworks and like seeing other people like little children around me who were just, wow, and they were amazed and they had no idea that there was this giant corporation that was probably polluting the lake and underpaying its staff. And all they felt was awe. They couldn't even articulate it. They just felt the joy of being alive. It was amazing. And I thought, I envy that little kid because that little kid owns something that I gave up. No, worse, I sold. I sold something I need for a job, for a career, for a status, for an opportunity. And now I'm trying to rebuild it or replant it and it takes forever. And I hope that little kid knows not to let it go. Because once it's gone, it takes a hell of a long time to get it back. I think we need to be people who still seek joy and who pursue wonder because we need it for life. If we're so busy fighting to save democracy or fighting to save the world, we should at least be clear on what we're saving it for, not just what we're saving it from. There are still wonderful things in the world. There are still moments where it's perfectly okay to just let go and get swept up. And I think the people who are the most divisive in our society are the ones who want to separate you from that vulnerable, open, wholehearted part of yourself that is able to be at the mercy of an experience and not feel like you're in danger. That part that says you have to armor up all the time. That's the real risk. Anyone on any side of the political aisle who tries to pull you away from that part of you, to hell with them. They're not your friend because they don't really see you. They don't see the best part of you, that playful part of you that goes, wow. So part of the reason I wanted to talk about this is just to kind of remind myself, and thank you for indulging me. I know this is long-winded, Lord Jesus. But to remind myself that it's okay to wow. It's okay to wonder. It's okay to wish. It's okay to dream. It's okay to be vulnerable. It's okay to talk about things that just make you go, oh, okay, that's, that's great. And not in that sense of when is the other shoe going to drop? What if there's no other shoe? There isn't always. So my commitment is to try to put more joy and more wonder in my work, to bring more moments of wow to what we talk about together. I don't want this show to be all about analyzing the end of the world. I don't want to be the last one to turn off the lights before the world blows up. That is not why I'm here. But it can feel like it unless I work consciously, intentionally to not be that person. And I hope you keep me honest on that too. If it's getting too heavy day after day, it's perfectly appropriate to be like, so um, had any wow lately? <laughs> Have you said wow lately? Ask me that because I need to know. 
And I think in the same way that we talked about social media and the need to check in on one another, I think that's one of those check-ins to make sure that that thing that animates us and lights us up never goes out, that it never dies. Once it does, it's so hard to turn it back on. And some of you can relate to this firsthand. I never want to lose my wonder. I never want to lose my wow. I never want to lose my joy in all of this. And I think one of the things that turned me away, and I'll show you this and then I promise I'll hush, that made it very clear that I was in the wrong place when I worked at MSNBC, that I just didn't belong there. When MSNBC, when I was there, the network turned 25, celebrated its 25th anniversary. And they asked 25 of us to write essays about MSNBC's 25th anniversary or for the 25th anniversary. And I got asked. I was like, hell yes, absolutely I will. And if you look at the various essays that were written, there's mine, my little peanut head. But if you look at the essays that were written, Rachel Maddow obviously got the first one. The last American election, 2020, and the rise of the anti-Democrats. Okay. And then Joy Reid's got one. Nicole Wallace, I served the GOP for 20 years. Now it's my responsibility to reveal what it's become. All right. Lawrence O'Donnell, the GOP's ride back to reality will speed up with every presidential election they lose. Okay. Tiffany Cross, how white supremacists are trying to fight the American evolution. Okay. Mika Brzezinski, gender equality is more than a right. What the hell do these have to do with MSNBC? <laughs> Nothing. But I hadn't seen their essays. All I knew about was mine. And the one that I wrote was this one. It's easy to be cynical about cable TV, but anchoring MSNBC is a dream come true. And my essay was, the, was one of the only ones, Brian Williams and me, that actually talked about the history of MSNBC and what a kick it is to be doing this work. And it was. And that's what the whole piece was about. And I feel like that's when I knew I didn't belong there. Because I knew if I stayed, then some of that would die. And I don't want it to die. I want it to live. And I want it to live for you too. So we'll mix it up. We'll keep it joyful. We'll keep it interesting. We'll keep it real. We talk about really heavy stuff on this show. But we should also talk about some light things. That's why the show is called The Night Light, after all. And I think it's hard to do sometimes, but not giving up. Not giving up. Let me just look through your comments. Oh, I see Skylar the writer. You wrote about one of the things that makes you feel wonder. You wrote seeing everything everywhere all at once. I have still not seen that movie. I'm such a terrible human being. I'm sorry. I know. I know. I know. I know. <laughs> but I need to go see that film. Oh, my goodness. I really do. I really do need to see that. I'm very sorry. Nora writes, my play and joy and wonder is something I intentionally cultivate, but it takes a while to get that childhood joy ready to hand again. Yes, very true. It takes a while. And I think it takes a while to kind of evolve it. Because when you're a kid, you don't even know what you're doing. You're just sort of doing it. It just feels good and you just do it. As an adult, part of the difficulty is accepting that the absence of that joy is reality. <laughs> it just doesn't feel good. And I think acknowledging the joy is also acknowledging the boundaries of that joy, that there's sorrow and difficulty on the other side. And you're kind of like counting down the moments until it stops, till the joy ends. That's something also to get away from, as opposed to just being grateful that like, wow, this was really fun. Back to the real world, but this was amazing and I'll be back. That's also very hard to do. Um, 
Yeah, it's a... Oh, thank you, Joseph. You're not alone, Joshua. I haven't seen that movie yet either. Thank you. Thank you. But I will see it. I will see it. And Holly on YouTube writes, my play is doing improv, playing pretend with other adults for other adults. I love improv. Improv is such a wonderful, great skill set to have. I mean, I used to teach improv. I taught improv when I was at the University of Miami. It's one of the most valuable skills I have learned in my entire career. Uh, And apparently it's one that I use all the time because, you know, what else is this? I appreciate you making time for me today. I hope you join me again tomorrow. We will continue our conversations about all the shenanigans going on on Capitol Hill. Also, some of the international news, including the Iranian drone strike that killed three American service members. I'll have more on that tomorrow. Remember to go to nightlightjoshua.com to follow me online, buy some merch, fill the tip jar, and just to get in touch with me. So, until we meet again, I'm Joshua Johnson. Thank you so much for making time for me. And as always, keep the joy, keep the wonder, and keep on shining as best you can because someone, somewhere, needs your light right now.